Every song that we play, every prayer that we pray, makes a bond in a way that's profound. We're just here to spread that love all around. Spread it around. Spread it around. Oh, that's so wonderful. Well, that is a little <laughs> teaser um, for everyone. Um, Theater Rhinoceros presents Sister Act, the musical. It uh, had previews May 17th, opened on Malcolm X's birthday, June uh, May 19th, this past Sunday. And it continues through June 1st at the Gateway Theater, 215 Jackson Street in San Francisco. And you can visit... Uh, www.therhino.org or call 1-800-838-3006 for tickets. You don't want to miss this musical. It is so awesome, particularly because our guest, um, who is on the air right now, uh, Brandon Noel Thomas, (laughs) is Dolores Cartier. Van Cartier, and you are just like, awesome. Oh, my God. Thank you. Oh, wow, I mean, you are just fabulous. And it was, like, so interesting. Wow, you began singing in the 11th grade after you were admitted mm-hmm. to the Oakland School for the Arts. Like, wow, you're an Oakland School for the Arts alum? That is so cool. I am. Yes. Wow, yeah. I remember when that place opened. So were you at the first iteration over at the Milanga Center in the basement or, or the new spot over by the Fox, over at the Fox I was building? part of... Yeah, I was part of the when they moved into the Fox Theater. Okay, okay. Nice, nice. Wow, I wish I would have seen you as a high schooler, you know, in some <laughs> of the musicals, because um, they had some really good plays, but there was a parent that would let me know when they were going up. And then when that parent's mm-hmm. child graduated, <laughs> I right. didn't hear about it anymore. <laughs> oh, wow, wow. That is so cool. That, wow, Oakland School for the Arts is has some real, has turned out some superstars, or you are already superstars, but my goodness, you all have really gone on to greatness, all of you all. Like, it's really yeah. wonderful. The list yeah. just keeps getting bigger, and, it seems like, the more it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So um, when did you graduate from Oakland School for the Arts, and how how long have you been, you know, an equity actor and just blowing up the stage? Tell us about some of your, you know, yeah, Tell us about yeah, the so, things you've done since since you graduated. So I graduated in 2012 at OSA, so not too mm-hmm. long ago. And I didn't really start singing right. much be- before that. I probably started singing probably two years before that. So 2010, mm-hmm. I started singing, really. And I didn't really get into theater mm-hmm. until after I graduated, actually. So my first musical mm-hmm. was Hairspray with the Peter Pan Foundation, and that mm-hmm. was around that same summer of 2012. And so once I started to do theater, I it really, like, sparked the inspiration. And it's really sparked, like, a fire under me. I found, like, a passion that I wanted to do and that I found joy in doing. 
more than just like when I'm at school or when my school doesn't play. And so once I found out that mm-hmm. I could audition other places, I just started to reach out to different theaters. And once I started to get into the scene, I found out what equity was because equity is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. It pretty much is like the union for the actors of right. really anywhere within uh, the United States, also like the UK. You know, there's always an equity mm-hmm. house union that we can call and reach. And it's really good mm-hmm. for actors because it, it not only gives us the opportunity to have, like, a dental plan and insurance just in case we get hurt during a show. It's just, it's just really oh, there nice. for us. Yeah, it's really mm-hmm. there for us whenever we do shows and just for, like, safety and all those things that you can't really get when you're doing it as a hobby. It's more so, like, when you, if you're trying to do theater for a job, equity is the it's the way to go, and it really supports you as an actor, which is good because actors and theater need support nowadays as much as we can get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so oh, once I became awesome. equity, yeah, I moved mm-hmm. to Vegas. Oh. And so oh, I you moved to Vegas about five months ago. Yeah, yeah, oh. I just moved to <laughs> Vegas. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah, wow. Well, I think our other, let me see, this might be um, Tammy or AJ. Uh, good okay. morning. Good morning. Hi, good morning. This, hi, Tammy. How, uh, this oh, is AJ as well. Hey, AJ. Hi, Brandon. Hi, Wanda. Oh. Hello, hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. Did you get a chance to see opening night, Tammy? Yeah, really? and, yeah. Um, exactly. And congratulations <laughs> on the raffle win. <laughs> Oh, thank you. That was like so surprising. <laughs> I was like, like, what? <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm drinking out of the cup now, the mug now. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. So we we are joined by um, Tammy L. Hall, um, music director for um, Theater Anasra's um, production of Sister Act, the musical, and. Uh, A.J. Mitchell, both uh, Tammy and A.J. have been on the air with us before. A.J. is the fabulous director, choreographer. It's like, yeah. So, mm-hmm. A.J., have you, have you got many awards, like from Theater Bay Area? Because you are just like a phenomenal choreographer and director. And just like yeah. whenever you put your hands on something, it's like, oh, my goodness. Like, we don't even have to know what it is. It's like, A.J. is involved. Like, yes, we are there. <laughs> Um, you know, I am I am I am new on the scene here. I'm still building a lot of community and credit. Um, but I ha- I was nominated for a um, Bay Area Theater Critics Circles Award for my choreography, uh, Priscilla, um, 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, but you yeah. know, I don't do it for the rewards. I do it for the community, and mm-hmm. um, and we'll see what happens. Just go around. <laughs> Oh yeah, well, that's nice of you to say. But I would love to be able to read. Oh, and he was got the award for blah 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 for this, because <laughs> Priscilla in 2017 is like, oh my goodness, just like, just like Sister Act, um, the musical. I want to go back. Like a lot of times, I want to just sort of like sit outside the theater and when it opens, be in the audience every single evening until it closes. <laughs> it's that awesome. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and and Tammy, oh my goodness, you know, as a musical director, every evening there's going to be live music, and for real? Yes. 
every evening. Wow. That's yeah. so awesome. How how did how did the Adirondacks afford that? Because you don't see <laughs> live you don't hear live music every single performance. Usually it's taped and then played. Even you know, when it's original or whatever, like you hear the score yeah. but you don't like see the see the, the musicians coming out with their instruments, you know, in their protective bags and things like that unless they have a piano which stays, I'm sure, at the venue. But uh <laughs> no. Yeah, we're a, we are a, a trio, a piano, bass, mm-hmm. and drums, and um, and I'm grateful to Theodore Rhino for for honoring that live music belongs also in the theater. Mm-hmm. And wow, honoring the really honoring honoring the energy exchange that 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 is. It just adds it adds a more adventurous. And a more exciting dimension to the whole, to the whole production. Live music is live. Come on, mm-hmm. you know it's yes, it it's is. Vital. It really is. It's vital. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, right, right. I have to thank um, thank the donors to Theater Rhinoceros um, because I had to you know do a little heavy heavy foot <laughs> with the uh, with the producer to to get mm-hmm. a, a decent wage for the other for the musicians and again you know it's for the overall elevation of community and that includes music i don't know how people would consider a musical without and and make the music a second thought you know that disconnect i'll Mm -hmm. never understand but theater rhino has moved in the very right direction with with pursuing um having live music and i'm so glad that AJ uh, pulled me in on this project. I'm really grateful to him, mm-hmm. and I love our collaboration. And I look forward to when he's writing and producing, and maybe has his own company because I would certainly want to be involved <laughs> in that. Yeah. Oh yes. Oh wow. Oh That'd my goodness. Cool. Are you working on something like that, AJ? Are you thinking about that? <laughs> I am, and um, it's been really great to work with Tammy in this capacity. And also, I mean, the incomparable Brandon Noel Thomas, like, wow, what a talent, what a talent. Um, But but, um, in this this process, um, I've been able to, we've been able to take some of the music of the show and really make it our own. Uh, I've literally asked Tammy to restructure some of the music, and we um, particularly... The Curtis track, um, just uh, mm-hmm. the Curtis track, which has been, um, which typically is this fun, jazzy piece. But we were looking at the piece and we we're like, this is not funny. This is not fun. This is real. Mm-hmm. There's real violence mm-hmm. against uh, black uh, femme bodies, right? Real violence against trans women mm-hmm. and, and, and femme women mm-hmm. of color every day in our country. I mean, you just see it uh, recently with the um, with the passing of a black trans woman who was murdered in the streets, right? In Dallas. Um, in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 and we mm-hmm. see this reality daily, and I didn't want to trivialize that truth. Um, and Curtis and our, the, the, uh, the lady who plays Curtis, um, Crystal Liu, also didn't want to trivialize mm-hmm. that. So Tammy and I worked mm-hmm. collaboratively to pretty much rewrite the number, reorchestrate the number, using the same language of mm-hmm. the show, but really thinking about how would this show sound in our current day, like guys. And through that, um, Tammy and I were like, let's put something together. 
Oh, AJ, you're breaking up a little bit. Oh, yeah. We we miss we miss we miss a lot of that. If you could um, say it again. Um, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Um, so it it feels mm-hmm. like it's percolating. Um, just. Oh, happened again. It's breaking. It's happening now. Yeah, sorry. Is this better? Yes. Hello? Is this better? Yes, mm-hmm. it's better. Yes. Mm-hmm. Also, thank you. Um, so, yeah, so I was just saying that in the process, we were we were looking to um, restructure and tell the truth about what what violence against um, black femme bodies and um, uh, trans bodies really are in this world. And Tammy and I mm-hmm. took the music of Curtis um, and, or the language of Curtis and basically reorchestrated that number to what you saw on the stage. And working collaboratively mm-hmm. in that way, there was a spark of Tammy and I saying, huh, what if we <laughs> what if we wrote something together? Um, mm-hmm. um, so it's definitely, you know, there's pieces that I've been working on for the past several years that I'm interested in bringing to the stage. Mm-hmm. So uh, this collaboration may be something that grows from this process. Oh, that's great. Yeah, because you are a member yeah. of the, uh, a company member of the Black Artist Contemporary Cultural Experience, and, and I've seen exactly. you. Um, uh, actually, I mean, you're also an actor. Um, you, yes. um, I saw you in um, Rob O'Hara's uh, uh, Booty Candy and American Mall That's at right. Bravo. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. awesome. And 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 also, it's like wow, I um, it's so wonderful to to see you. You know, um, you you teach um, a musical theater, Thank I you. think, at um, at the um, uh, what is it? The give me the name of it. I know it's on Grand and. Um, in Oakland, oh, uh, but yes, what's the name of oh, it's, um Stage Bridge. I am um yeah, Stage I Bridge, was right. I was a part of the faculty. Yeah, I was I was a part of their faculty for a while and mm-hmm. um I'm actually now I'm not working with them as much anymore because I'm now the director mm-hmm. of theater at Contra Costa School for Performing Arts. Um and you so are. that's taking up most of my time. Oh, right. yeah, I, am, I am, I am. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So mm-hmm. so I'm working out here in Walnut Creek and trying to to train young minds to do this work, uh, you know, when I'm thinking about Brandon, mm-hmm. right, being an OSA and in the mm-hmm. community of art and performance, um, that's where they got their start. That's where you guys start. And so this is what we're doing here as well. Mm-hmm. And I find it really important that um, students are seeing a femme, queer, non-binary artist who is doing the work in the, in the industry, um, leading their classrooms, right? It's really important to me that they're seeing that representation as educator, as director, as choreographer, and as actor. Um, it's important that they see that and they know that whatever their background is, they can do it. Um, and that's what's mm-hmm. so great about this production is that we have exploded the gender <laughs> normatives of, <laughs> of the world in this show. Right? We've exploded it and mm-hmm. we've said – what like let's live in the truth of San Francisco. Let's live in the truth of gender that we want to see in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's you know like when we when we have people like Brandon Noel, who I've seen on stage many times, and I would always say to myself, there is like, why can't Brandon exist as I know Brandon exists in these roles, right? Why did mm-hmm. why does he have to butch mm-hmm. it up for the stage, <laughs> um, which oh, which he does okay. well, right? Which which is a, which is a great. He's like you know Solomon Fat Swallers. A Fat Swallows character in Amos Behaven. Amazing work he does there. Mm-hmm. But also, Brendan is this fabulous 
um, uh, somebody in the in the world. And so, like, why can't we see that also on the stage? Why can't that be honored on the stage? Why do we right. hide uh, pieces of our identity in order mm-hmm. to play mm-hmm. roles on the musical theater stage? And I don't think that's necessary anymore. Um, and I think it's important that we start uplifting identities on the musical theater stage in particular. I think we're better at it on the non-musical stage, the the play stage, but as far as musical theater, we are mm-hmm. stuck somehow in this idea that gender is one thing and love interest are one thing and, and yeah. race is one thing. Um, like, so every lover interest is white and every every story is a straight story or a white gay story or normative story, right? And and we're just looking like, why does it have to be? Uh, why do we have to do that? Kind yeah. Of so, yeah. We don't yeah. have we Well, we don't, we have, don't have to. to. I mean, That's exactly we can right. write the new story. We just need to Leave exactly. that paradigm behind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Brandon, Noel, tell us about about um, Dolores. And um, for our audiences, maybe is not familiar with Sister Act. I don't know how anyone could not be familiar with Sister Act. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just such a wonderful story. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hadn't I hadn't really thought about sort of the trans transformative nature of, of the character, you know, um, mm-hmm. um, until I until I sort of looked at the songs and how they're sung, you know, one one part of the of the uh of the story and then how they, they change, like Take Me to Heaven. How mm-hmm. you know, initially it's it's one Take Me to Heaven. Heaven is not is not the same heaven that it is right. um when um <laughs> your character you know when she sings exactly. it again. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. The backup girls are different too. <laughs> <laughs> Got new backup girls, new meaning to the song. You'll flip the whole script. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, so tell us but, about tell but, us about your character. And tell us what what the uh, what the play is about, and why yeah, you were interested so, in in, in uh, occupying this particular role. So when I first even heard of it, uh, Sister Act is a story that I would watch as a kid, and just I was always in love with Whoopi Goldberg, who was the original Dolores Van Cartier in the movie, which was based in San Francisco. They actually changed the location for the show, but we wanted, to, as AJ was saying, we wanted to stay true to like not only where we are based from, but from the original movie. So we put it back in San Francisco. And it really, it really spoke to me because this was an opportunity to do something that doesn't really get done ever. And so it was kind of a hard opportunity to pass up in general to not only play a role that Whoopi Goldberg has originated, but one of my favorite musicals, one that's, I would say, iconic in not only the film, but in the black community, as far as I know, that's an iconic movie, iconic role that everybody's like, oh, yes, that movie was iconic mm-hmm. for my childhood and my history and who I am today sort of role. And the fact that I can bring a new light and a new image to that to open people's eyes, because that's pretty much what the show and movie was about. It was opening people's eyes, putting a new spin on something that's been done for centuries, for generations. And so I was like, Mm -hmm. the fact that it's already known for being something different and something inspiring to people, it's great that we put this extra spin on it. And now it has another layer of inspiration and a new layer of, of, of models for people to see when they come see the show. 
So it's really mm-hmm. more than just like, I'm going to play Dolores Van Cartier for the last bow. Because, you know, as AJ was saying, we don't do it for like the praise or the or the acknowledgement. We do it for, I always like to say, I aspire to inspire. It's what I usually put mm-hmm. in my bio. And that's why I got started in theater. And that's why I take the roles that I do. It's to inspire that one kid was like, oh, I probably can't do theater because I'll never be able to play this role. It's like, no, if you want to play the role, you just got to keep telling them I can play this role. I know you're not used Mm -hmm. to it, but you're going to get used to it because we have to to keep this moving forward because it's, what, Mm -hmm. 2019? It's only going to keep getting more Mm -hmm. dates on and everything else, and we got to keep moving. We can't get stuck in what we used to do because the world is not the same like it used to be. And Dolores, she's yeah. just trying to find her way within the show as well as everyone is trying to find their way in life. She has she's dating this very bad person who owns a nightclub and she sees him do something very bad and so she has two options. She can either get killed by him or go to the cops and get hidden inside of a convent. So she chooses to stay alive and go get hidden in a convent, which I think is a smart idea. And so once she does that, she just finds a new life that she thought she only saw one side of because she grew up in the Catholic schools. And so she was like, no, they just put me down. And then she got to meet some of these people who who are in that lifestyle and who chose that journey. And now she gets to see how they actually feel about it and makes connections with them. It's not so much just a chastising, like, you're wrong because you're different and you're the outside, which is kind of how it starts. But then once each mm-hmm. side sees the other person's perspective of not only themselves but the world, they're like, oh, we're actually not that different. And it's like, yeah, we just see things differently. Like you look at a six from your direction, I look at a nine from my direction. We're both <laughs> not wrong. That's what we see from our direction. If we went to the other side, we w- I would see your six, you would see my nine, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's what the story is mostly about, and it's really beautiful. I love doing the show every time, and that's the mm-hmm. beautiful story of Sister Act and how I perceive and why I took on the role for the challenge of mm-hmm. inspiring and challenging people's minds to be expanded within, the, within not only theater but the world themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, any any particular. Um, scenes um anyone um particular song that you like oh my god i just love this one <laughs> mm-hmm. i love everything brandon noel thomas sings oh, yeah. everything. <laughs> <laughs> that, absolutely yeah, yeah I, I think sing um, any, my favorite anything yes <laughs> my favorite moment of the show is um is a number called bless our bless our show mm-hmm. um and it's yeah. the, the, the all the nuns are nervous about the the upcoming performance, and they're asking Brandon, our Loris's character, to um, give a blessing for the show. And but mm-hmm. in the staging, uh, as I was saying, yeah, there's a there's a dance break that is in the in the number, and I was like, I don't know, this needs, needs a dance break. And we and and mm-hmm. in the collaboration, okay. we're like, let's actually just make this a moment of um of sisters having fun and enjoying themselves and, and letting their hair down and being safe and feeling confident in their space of security. Um, and it's just this really beautiful, heart touching moment of, uh, you know, when, when, when Dolores' character and Brandon plays it so beautifully starts to see, Oh my gosh, I can have a family here. I, like, mm-hmm. I actually can have mm-hmm. people who love me and, and care for me and, 
um, it's not just about competing against other fan bodies and other women in spaces, but also like the sisterhood of that. And really, like, what does it mean to be a sister, right? There was, um, and, and there was this great quote that was I was reading this week around um, it's sisters, S S I S T E R S, and not sister, C I S T E R S, right? It's not just mm-hmm. about cisgender uh, women, right? It's oh, about like fam yeah. sisterhood. Fam sisterhood mm-hmm. and how that has supported and upheld and upheld us. And I think about mm-hmm. stories like Compton's Cafeteria Riot and Stonewall, where these fam and transgender women, um, uh, fam folks and transgender folks and um, um, of color decided to say, "We're protecting ourselves now. We're mm-hmm. not. We're no longer going to stand to to bullying or stand." to, um, you know, police brutality or uh, heteronormative brutality, that we're going to stand together, we're going to fight back. And that for me is that moment when Dolores says, all right, these are the people that will take care of me. Um, and, they, and they are my people. And even, and even though it's in this place, place of, uh, you know, what we consider the, the, the Christian church, it actually is a place of sanctuary that is loving and kind and caring, mm-hmm. um, which is so interesting. So, like, I think about my own world and, like, as a, as someone who grew up in the Baptist church um, and finding those moments of, like, there is community here. There is sanctuary here. And there's, it doesn't always have to be this, this toxic place of, of violence against these bodies, against femme bodies and queer bodies, but also a place that can be community and loving and caring. Um, and that moment to me in the show is just one of the most. It always it always brings me to tears every time I see it. Every time I see it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, you know, um, I'm really interested in, in hearing about some of the other, um, uh, I guess, songs that that you you change the way that change the presentation just because. Um, yeah, it just it's really interesting, you know, hearing about the thinking around it because I um uh, I really um. I really like that particular song, Bless Our Show, because I remember when um, earlier in in the uh, in the play or the musical, when Dolores was asked to bless the meal, and and she really didn't know how to pray, and that yeah. was really funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and then um, um, yeah, and that I guess it's around the the part where you know the the song is it's good to be a nun, but Mother Superior, she was so resistant. Um, you know, she opened mm-hmm. up the house because, um, you know, philosophically it's supposed to be a sanctuary, but her heart mm-hmm. wasn't in it. And so when she sings right. right here within these walls, you know, the walls are are her around sort of surrounding her perspective and her her compassion mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then she sings it again um you know in the same act <laughs> here within these walls yeah. and <laughs> like okay and and it's really great that there's a um among a monsignor um O'Hara that's above mm-hmm. the, the uh mother superior who likes Dolores and likes what she brings that's fresh and different. Otherwise, um, Dolores might have been kicked out a long time ago. And and then, yeah. and then in the next and then the next in Act Two, you know, when Mother Superior sings, "I haven't got a prayer," you know, sort of like the doubter, you know, like you know when you, I don't I don't know the Bible really well, but you know, sort of like there were these people 
hanging with Jesus and and they were like questioning their faith. Yeah. And and all things like that kind of song for her, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yes, yes, exactly. Doubting Thomas, yep. So anyway, no, I was I thinking about that and then I also thought and then I'm, I'm gonna let you all talk, sorry. Is um about um Father Jay Matthews who just passed and how like mm-hmm. the Catholic Church in Oakland is like the it, they're all slamming, right? Exactly, Saint Columba. Right. And I'm like, how come? How come? You know, this this queen, this you know, um, queen of angels church didn't know the folks in Oakland. Right. <laughs> but but also, you, you, I mean, you think about you think about that in general too, right? Like, I have people who in my community who were born and raised in San Francisco who are like, I don't have any pe- friends of color. <laughs> I've never been to a drag show, or you know, it's like so. It's like this is real. I mean, oh. and I'm, even in Walnut Creek, right? Wow. It's like there's some yeah. folks who like have never. There's some folks who've never been to San Francisco, never been to Oakland, and because they're trying to oh. find sanctuary, right? But that sanctuary mm-hmm. means to displace and to ignore and to be blind to. Like, what does sanctuary mm-hmm. actually mean in a modern day context? Right, because it should mean that you are sanctuary is open to everyone. But right now, sanctuary just means that I'm open to my people and who looks like me, who talks like me, who thinks like me. And if you're not that, mm-hmm. then you're not allowed to have my sanctuary. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that seems to be what's happening at Queen of Angels, right? Even um, the scene, right. there's another scene in the show where they're in the bar, and um, mm-hmm. the the nuns are like, "Oh my gosh, this is what music is. This is what disco balls look like." So they're like talking about sanctuary, but they're hidden. They're like they're hiding themselves. They're mm-hmm. they're in they're in they're in fear and in, in and they're ignoring the world around them. They're not opening their walls. They're not opening their hearts. They're not opening their their environment to actually offer sanctuary to those who need it. They only offer it to those mm-hmm. who maybe have the same theological um, identity as they do, right? Which is not really what sanctuary was ever meant to be. Um, mm-hmm. in, 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 a, in a true sense of sanctuary, right? Um, so yeah, it, it's it's, mm-hmm. it's really. It's really plausible that these folks had no idea what was going on in Oakland and didn't care to find out. <laughs> and and so more the more the latter than the former, I would say that they, they yeah. didn't care to find out. Mm-hmm. That's okay. that's what that's okay. about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's interesting, you know that. Um, that this play is it it just like like you said, uh, Brandon Noel, that this is um it's a classic because it doesn't get old. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you drop Dolores in any kind of situation, you know, where, you know, the dominant culture is not us. And even mm-hmm. you know, it's like there's gonna be some some rumbling, you know, like right. you know, like will she, will she be, you know, be able to like reside there, we should be able to stay there. You know, you think about black people moving into neighborhoods where we don't, you right. know, we might be the first family, mm-hmm. black kids going to schools where they, they're mm-hmm. like five black children in the whole high school. My niece just graduated from a private school, and she was one uh, of five black kids, wow. and it was rough, rough. It's well, rough. And all the teachers well. are white. I mean, they might have good yeah, intentions, right. but it's just like, it's like it just doesn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. 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 I was one of two in my graduating class. Mm -hmm. Oh, seriously? Wow. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where'd you go? Yeah. Uh, The Hockaday School for Girls back in Dallas. The private girls' school. Mm -hmm. Is it still the same or has it it gotten a little bit 
um, whatever. Want to be boasting and bragging now. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, boasting they and bragging come, about they really blossomed. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But is, is, that, is that diversity just in the classroom? Or is it also in leadership? This is the next frontier. Because <laughs> right. I said in the same breath, well, I congratulate you on your outreach to, you know, to the tuition community, to the tuition paying mm-hmm. mm-hmm. community. But the te- you know, the teachers need to to be reflective of the population. They're Absolutely. teaching, and so Absolutely. I got a little bit of the, uh, you know, some pursed lips on that one. So, but I know <laughs> well, they're doing it. But this is exactly this is exactly right, though, right? It's like in, in the same mm-hmm. way that um, I'm, I, you know, I think that I've been collaborating with Rhino for about three years now, and um, mm-hmm. and but that that was the initial the, the initial idea, right? Is that well. I mean, a lot of, when I was talking to the community of color, queer community of color around uh, productions at Theater Rhino, they were like, well, um, we're not, it's like, well, that's great, but they're not really showing us all the time. I'm like, but that is, that's not, we're, we, this is what we're building now, right? We're building a community mm-hmm. where it is doing that. And they and John is yeah. working actively with us and the community to make sure that that's being represented. But the, it comes with, though, you have to have people willing to hire <laughs> folks who yeah. match that demographic, who who right. are people of color, who are queer, who are non-binary, who are trans, to tell these stories, right? And that mm-hmm. is not just about, and also the willingness to say, great, I'm going to, I'm going to bring in, we're going to, like, I need you. So I went to Jonathan, I need you to, like, Brandon needs to come here. Whatever it mm-hmm. takes, get Brandon into this space, right? The same thing mm-hmm. with Tammy. She said, whatever it takes, we need live musicians in this space. Um, mm-hmm. And and the and the community at Rhino said, okay, let's figure it out, <laughs> let's let's make yeah. it happen, um, because that's mm-hmm. the kind of leadership that we need. We need leadership that says that it, it's tired. We're tired of saying, oh, we're bringing in our one show of color a year, um, <laughs> and we know those companies, um, mm-hmm. but have no have no directors, have no choreographers, have no folk of color actually leading these processes. And that becomes problematic, right? You want to use our talent. You want to use our voices. You want to use our, our music, our stylings. You want to appropriate that culture mm-hmm. into your theater spaces. But you don't want to do the work in finding um, – and I'm going to get in so much trouble for saying this. So whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 you know, but, but, but you're not doing, necessarily doing the work to cultivate a, a, a directorship or a, a – um, choreographer or music director mm-hmm. who is of color or a lead mm-hmm. who, or a lead who is, who is lead. of color, not only, mm-hmm. not only is of color, but is actively being represented in their portrayal of that character. Right. They're not just doing mm-hmm. a show in blackface as I right. say, but they're actually yeah. actively bringing their identity, their culture, their understanding uh, to those roles. Right. This is equally as important. If you are walking and saying, Oh well, we cast we cast a, a um, black woman in this show. It's like, well, yeah, but did you talk about her culture? Did you was she actually involved in the creation of the character, or is she just playing a white narrative in blackface? <laughs> right, you right. Know? Like, is that you know? But that so that and I think I think the Bay is is doing some work in that, right? I think with the the kind of coming up events that's happening all throughout the country in regards to leadership of color. Uh, we saw it at, Oak, at at Oregon Shakespeare Festival at um, at um, Louis, Louisville um, Actors Theater of Louisville. 
it's, it's now has a leader, leader of color, um, an artistic director of color. We're mm-hmm. seeing that happening more and more, and it's, it's, it's starting. That, that transition is starting, and it's starting to recognize that we need multiple voices in leadership positions as ADs, as directors, as choreographers, leading the charge to mm-hmm. tell these stories on stage, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and we need the Brandon Noel Thomases of the world, right? We need the actors of the world who are yeah. who are being seen and honored as they should be, right? This is is important to be doing all those things. So that's my spiel, yeah. and I'm and now I'm gonna get some some flack <laughs> about that one, but you know, it's what it is. <laughs> well, I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm beside you. I'm beside you, and behind you, and in front of you on this. Yeah. So I'm I'm all in, AJ. Absolutely, yes. same mm-hmm. here. Because I mean, some theaters don't realize that in your community of wherever the theater is, for us the Bay Area, the black people do talk to each other. We do know each other. And so mm-hmm. we talk to each other. <laughs> if we see a black show, it's like, oh, who's directing? If it's not like somebody who represents what that show is, it's like, it's like oh, okay, well, who's choreographing? Still not representing that mm-hmm. show? Oh, I'm good. I, I can't mm-hmm. do a show where I'm they don't good. even know where we're coming from, you know, right. that <laughs> sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people, it's starting to click in a little bit, but it's mm-hmm. uh, we're still not there to where it's like, the, there are directors and uh, choreographers who can represent the shows that you are choosing to do, whether you want to work with them or not. That is their personal mm-hmm. personal opinion and ideas, but that does that play a toll on who's going to come out to those auditions after you release that information. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Yeah, Tammy, I wanted to ask you um, if you could um, maybe let us know who the other uh, two members of the ensemble are that um, are playing with you. Yes, we have Jay Jackson on drums, and she's um, she's a wonderful young great musician, and um, mm-hmm. and then Kevin Goldberg on the bass, and uh, okay. Kevin was one of my was one of my students at the California Jazz Conservatory. I uh, was subbing for Linda Tillery for a class and she was teaching there called Protest Songs mm-hmm. of Resistance and Protest. And mm-hmm. that's where I, I met that. Yeah. That's where I met Kevin. Um and he's just turned out to be a great guy, a great musician. And um he brought in Jay for me. Okay. I had another drummer yeah. lined up who because of illness and a and a really crazy schedule couldn't do it. So I'm so glad he introduced me to Jay, and you know she's working out wonderfully, just wonderfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's so cool. I mean, this whole show is just full of sort of gender bending kind of things. Like you know, you got a woman on the drums. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> and the uh, yeah, yeah, be yeah, considered as gender bending, but it still is. Um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, interestingly yeah. enough. Mm-hmm. But um, right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, all all genders matter here. <laughs> all genders matter mm-hmm. in the in this space, That's and it's right. important to, especially you know, when you are when you're the longest running LGBTQ um, theater, then that that shift that begins to shift. Like, what are you what are you showing mm-hmm. your stages begin to shift? How you're mm-hmm. talking about right. it begins mm-hmm. to shift because the the world is shifting mm-hmm. around what that looks like. We're still determining language, right? Like right. Uh, mm-hmm. like non-binary, NB, queer, trans, 
um, non-gender conforming, what, you know, all this new language that is, is happening around defining gender and identity, then like in the same way, the theater must match that. It must match that, right? It, like we can't stay stuck in old language because the theater is living, no. it's alive, it's breathing, it's, it's happening. Right. So and same with music, same with art, any art, any performative art, you have to match it. Um, you can't stay stuck, mm-hmm. right? You can't stay stuck in this world of like, well, well, it means that, you know, it means one thing. It no, no longer means that anymore. It no longer means that anymore. So how do we represent that on our stages um, and with, with the things we're presenting? And I mean, that, that's something in the Bay Area that's doing that now, right? I think of, um, you know, Theater First that is really yes. in some ways leading that charge of making sure mm-hmm. that equity and inclusion is at the forefront of their casting and hiring and et cetera. Um, but I, I, I mean, there's multiple companies that are doing that work and, um, but it's, it's happening slowly, incrementally, and it just needs to happen faster. <laughs> in, in my opinion. Yeah. 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 And theater first, you know, pays, you know, it's actors, which is wonderful. Do, like yeah. you can actually, yeah. you know, not starve, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, during the rehearsal 100%. process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. Yeah. I, um, I had a question about uh, a couple of uh, places. Um, I was had a question about um, uh, the Eddie Eddie character, um, who is um, a police officer, but he he doesn't have a gun, and um, initially, and that's really interesting. Um, and mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't remember um, the movie in, well enough to know if this is something new or not, and. Um, and that's uh, Jared um, Holly, who is really great. And then in that song, he does um, "I Could Be That Guy," um, mm-hmm. and then he's he's he changes into a homeless person. And and I was I was kind of confused um, around. I mean, I understand I could be that guy, and and I could be that guy who is, you know, having rough times and and also be out of out of a, you know not have a place to live, you know, unhoused person or underhoused person. But then I didn't um yeah, I was just wondering about about that particular number. It didn't quite I didn't understand it. Oh, and also oh, another great. number that I really like is um <laughs> another number I really like is uh, the life I never led. Um yeah. which is really yeah. awesome and oh I just and I just love I love the uh the actress who sings that, um, she is mm-hmm. phenomenal. It's just, it's yes, yes. we, I love her with the boots, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and you yeah. could, you could call her name. Her, 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 um, the character's name is Mary Roberts. You can get, call her, her other name, her, her, her actual name. Yeah. So I just wanted to just yeah. give a shout out to her for that yeah. particular number. Cause it's, oh, uh, Abigail Campbell. Yeah. It's, it's mm-hmm. really, really awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. back to I yeah, think that guy. You said that it's not clear to you either. Is that what you oh mean? no! I... So, yeah. So, um, um, so, so, uh, so Eddie is he? He's he's a cop, and um, right. he is not. He he he's surrounded by um, underhoused or um, um, homeless folk in the number, but he himself mm-hmm. is not. Um. Oh, and the, the okay. idea, the the idea around that um, is is in the script. It's in it's in the script of that, and I and I was thinking about why is this happening. Um, but it's really about the community that is within those um, circles, right? We also think about uh, when we think about the homeless community or or, or, or underhoused community. Um, 
the initial thought is like we are thinking about people who are addicted to drugs or have some type of mental illness. Um, but in, in the majority of that space, though, it is folks who are um, just building community and trying to survive together and trying to help each other and trying to give each other some type of way to move forward. And um, and in that number, Eddie is doubting themselves, and the the, the homeless um, and underhouse folks are saying, Tom hurt, do it. They're, they're, they're uh, Eddie's cheerleaders. And just seeing these this community uh, as cheerleaders, as people who support each other when they're down and or they feel like they're the, at the, their lowest point, they're supporting each other, they're feeding each other, they're making sure each other are safe. Um, and that moment is, is, a, is a hint at that culture within those communities um, within the Bay Area. Um, yeah, so that so that's kind of if that makes some some give some clarity to that scene. Um, that's what that's about. Okay, thanks, thanks. <laughs> so um, I've held you all over a little bit. I just wanted to um, ask if you want to give your contact websites and things like that, so people can follow you um, after uh, June first, because definitely people need to get over to. Um, the Gateway Theater, two fifteen Jackson, before um, or at or by June first. Um, the uh, performances are are they uh, Wednesday through Sunday? Technically, it's Wednesday through Saturday. Double Saturday. Wednesday we through have, Saturday. Okay, mm-hmm. this week. Mm-hmm. And then next okay, week we eight, have one Tuesday. Oh, you have mm-hmm. a Tuesday. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Oh, Just next week. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so there, the evenings are 8 o'clock and on Saturday. What time is the matinee on this Saturday? 3 o'clock. 3, Three o'clock. 3 o'clock, okay. Mm-hmm. 3 o'clock. So there's a matinee this weekend and next weekend mm-hmm. and a Tuesday next week. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, maybe I'll mm-hmm. come back on yeah. Tuesday. Cool. Yeah, come to Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. Um, well, you can follow my work on Instagram at am mm-hmm. uh, underscore queer director, um, and mm-hmm. that's where most of my work is posted. Okay. All right. And, and I'm, at Tammy, the, I'm at TammyHall.com. Usually I try to, try to keep the calendar up to date. <laughs> cool, cool. And my information for Instagram is Brandon Noel Thomas. That's B R A N D E N Noel mm-hmm. Thomas. And it's a public account, so you can message me through there for any contact information. But also, if you wanted to email me, you can reach me at Noel Thomas. So that's N O E L T H O M A Z at gmail.com as well. Okay, super. Yeah. And, um, and what's next for you all? Do you know? Rest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yes. Let's see. I have um, doing a show at the at the Freight and Salvage called Women of Motown on June second. Mm. So that's at like Ooh, uh, one o'clock. So okay, you know, one o'clock. If you want to keep dancing, Women come on over. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Nice. Nice. Cool. Great. That's gonna be awesome. Super, super. Yeah. Well, thank you, thank you all so much for yeah. um, telling, talking to us about about the show. It is simply fabulous. I mean, absolutely <laughs> fabulous. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna definitely come back through so I can 
Ah, just listen to you sing some more, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I hope I hope, you know, that you come through again, you know, soon, um, you know, performing somewhere else in the Bay. Otherwise I guess I have to journey up to uh to Vegas and see you there. <laughs> and I'll have to go well, with you, Wanda. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely have to make a plan yeah. then, Tammy. Yeah, and I and I hope you all um um have a recording. I would love to purchase um the mm. recording of, of this soundtrack. Oh. I don't know about all the <laughs> the different licensing <laughs> things that might happen. But gosh, it would be so cool if we could take it home, you know. <laughs> mm. Well, don't you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I have let me know. Have the studio in mind. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. we'll see what happens. All right. Okay. Cool. It's been too <laughs> long since so they recorded longer. that one that was on Thank Broadway. You. you all are great. Right. Oh, right. you're quite welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right. You take good care. You <laughs> too. Bye. Peace and blessings. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Let's see now. Um, we are going to um, play uh, Gritty City um, Theater um, is really, really, really awesome. Um, uh, the, uh, the production, oh, my goodness. Um, they have, the young people have done such a phenomenal job. Uh, if you want to read my review of uh, Sister Act and um, The Taming of the Shrew, definitely uh, check it out on wandaspicks.com. I'm going to, um, gosh, I don't know what I'm going to play. <laughs> I am going to, um, let's see. Um, I'm going to play Tranquility by uh, Bobby Hutchison.
I am going to play an old uh, program, um, July 25th, 2014. Uh, it's, um, the description says, Hate Crimes, Maroon, and Geraldine Wah from Baji. <laughs> so we shall be pleasantly surprised. Um, and uh, I want to let folks know that the, um, the uh, Sex Worker um, uh, Film Festival is kicking off this week, and so um, definitely don't want to miss that. And um, uh, Sangria is going to be um, having her um, program on Friday in um, Sangria Red is going to be having her program on Friday um, in Oakland, and it's called Oakland. The place is Oakland Soul, and the event is Black Mother and Jazz at 6:30, um, 15 to 50 dollars sliding scale, um, and it's uh, Oakland Soul is 1236 23rd Avenue in Oakland, and Sangria Red is takes transports back to a 1930s New Orleans juke joint for an evening of erotic stories pre-biblical. Storytelling, music, food, and again, that's 6.30 to 8. That should be so fun. I'm so sad I'm not going to be able to make it. And you can get tickets uh, at sexworkerfest.com or blackmother.eventbrite.com. And it's uh, in conjunction with Sex Worker Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area Sex Worker Film and Arts Festival, um, which is beginning this week and it goes through next week. Alrighty, and uh, yeah, so back to um, <laughs> this special program. I want to let you know about that. And uh, okay, so let's see what this is all about. I don't remember. <laughs> Good morning, and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a Black Arts and Culture program of the African Sisters Media Network. We're going to uh, play a little bit of an interview we had with Professor Williams, who uh, is sharing with us. Uh, a hate crime that she uh, was victim of mm, maybe about a month ago now. And, uh, yeah, it's really, really horrific um, how her college district has responded to uh, to this crime against her and her family. And um, so I'm going to play this. It was first broadcast last Friday. Um July July 18th Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Ticks, a Black Arts and Culture program of the African Sisters Media Network. <laughs> ah, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Good morning everybody. Oh, how are you doing, Casey um, Williams? No, so happy I'm that you're able to join us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, had some technical difficulties this morning. Glad you were able to hang in there while we were waiting to get started. Oh, yeah. I'm happy to be here, and I'm glad to be invited. Our network is strong, isn't it? Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, yeah, I um, right now you're you're um, you're solo in the studio, and um, wanted you to. Tell our audience about, you know, the really horrific um, hate crime that, that happened um, to you as a professor at the college where you teach. 
and um, while I um, get my, you know, pull up all my details um, <laughs> so we can talk a little more succinctly. Um, so tell our audience a little bit about, about yourself and um, and where you teach and, and what brings you to the air this morning. Okay, thank you, uh, Sister Wanda. Thank you for that uh, for this opportunity to talk about it. Um, I teach at a, a small southern community college in North Carolina. Um, that's basically the only game in town, Coastal Carolina Community College. Um, the military base is in town and the college, and that's pretty much it. It's kind of like walking into a time warp because not a lot of things have changed um, you know, the, 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 the gains that we expected to make from civil rights era haven't really, haven't really taken effect here yet. <laughs> so um, I teach at this college, and I teach sociology, um, the sociology of sex and gender, social diversity, social deviance, sociology of the family. I mean, really fun classes, at least to me. And this is what I went to college to study, so this is what I know. But... Um, over the years, there's just been a lot of resistance, and I know that lots of us in education notice the difference from when we first started teaching 25 years ago to now. Times have changed. The racial climate in our country has changed, and there's a lot of resistance to even talking about, much less understanding racism. So oftentimes when students get confronted with conversations about privilege or the actual definition of racism, they take out their dislike of these, you know, scholarly definitions on me and on other faculty as well. But my case seems to be a little bit different because not only do the students take it out on me, I feel uh, very unsupported by my own administration who happen to be 100% white and all of our division chairs are white and 88% of our uh, department heads are white but only 68% of our town is white and 68% of our students are white. So there's more going on than just students being mad because they're being forced to learn about privilege and to confront truths that they don't want to know. Um, and that's fine. Everybody doesn't have to like what they learn in college, but you're paying money to learn. And I need to be supported in that effort. So the student that brought the news to school was angry, um, uh, the, the background is he started my course in January, he dropped my course in March, um, and he brought a news to school in May and uh, was also overheard in the courtyard at, at our school making some really white supremacist statements. I mean, he was saying things like the reason that black people get sickle cell is because they're an inferior subhuman species, that we should let them all kill themselves off. Um, just some really scary things. And then he brought up that he had written a letter about me to our board of directors and to our president, and that even if I came on my hands and knees, he wasn't going to forgive me or whatever. I mean, just some really ugly stuff. So within two days, I heard about him standing outside slandering me and then bringing the news to school. So I, I told my husband about the news. I was actually in a final exam. Right, I was told about the news right before I went into a final exam, and I kind of sat there for a minute thinking, wait a minute, this student of color just came to me and told me that someone showed her a noose and said it was for me, that he was going to hang it on my door. And it took me a minute to process it. Um, but then I, I texted my family, and I was like, the same guy I told you about on Tuesday 
that said he was going to, you know, wouldn't take my apology on my hands and knees. Now he's brought a noose. And my husband just flipped out, and he called the police, and the police came and arrested the student, um, and the student was charged with ethnic intimidation and communicating a threat. And so that was in May. Uh, the, the trial was in July. It was la- a couple weeks ago, last Thursday, and the judge did find him guilty of these crimes. Um, but my husband and I went to meet with the top administrator at our college to just let him know, you know, this is horrible what happened to me. This is terrible, uh, and it affects how I teach. And um, to make a long story short, let's just say I was not supported. Um, I was basically reamed out and um, criticized and put down and insulted and basically told that I can control this kind of thing if I can, you know, sort of just be nicer to these kinds of students than, uh, you know, it's all my fault, basically. And I, I left that meeting devastated. You know, I expect to be supported. We don't have to look very far in the news to see examples of violence at schools. And in North Carolina, our legislature actually made it uh, legal for students to bring their guns to school. They can have them in their cars. So I, I feel that I'm at risk. I feel endangered. And a noose is a terroristic tool. Everybody knows what a noose means. Um, so I'm, I'm here today to just kind of talk about the support that we still need in our community. You know, we're not living in a post-racial world by any stretch of the imagination. And people like me um, who are on the front lines, you know, we deserve to be supported. And we should not be blamed when people exact violence against us. There's nothing a person can do to a student. You know, there's nothing a, a, an instructor or a professor can do to deserve to be threatened with a noose, you know, so that's right. what I'm here to talk about. And I'm just really happy that, that there's a forum like yours that exists where we can talk about these things and, and people can find out how to support, you know, those of us that are out there. And, and many of us are out there on the front lines, not just in education, but in all the fields, you know. And, and it's just unfortunate because these things are still going on. And this is 2014. So I'm just happy yes. to have this forum. And thank you for this opportunity to speak and to tell my story. It's really important that we tell our stories. Yes, it certainly, certainly is. And uh, when we were speaking um, uh, off the air yesterday, uh, just for me to get a sense of, of, you know, what happened in this particular community college district, or actually, and college district, because I believe you told me that there are 58 colleges in your in your college district, and um, and you said that when you were hired, uh, the the president of of the college said that um, that you can't take any anything to the newspapers, and you can't criticize the military because in your particular town, those are the two strongest uh, institutions: the military base and and the college, um, and. And given that this is not a union state, I didn't even know that there, there such as existed. Um, you know that, um, uh, with North Carolina is not a union state, that there, you know, there's no place for you to go to get recourse. If you get fired, you're just fired, right? That's right. I mean, North Carolina's policy is, you know, you're hired where we are contract employees. Every year we have to face recontract, and. Under those kind of stipulations, you know, people, most people don't want to make waves. They don't want to do anything that would jeopardize their jobs, and I understand that. I want to keep my job, too. 
I'm an educator. I, I love teaching. I'm a great teacher. I've always been a teacher. You know, I want to work too, but I don't want to work under the thumb of oppression. I don't want to work under the thumb of the threat that you will just take what we give you, even if your life is threatened. That's not okay, you know. And, and yeah, for a state like North Carolina, which has a lot of challenges anyway, um, and a long story history, um, you know, intertwined with the civil rights era, a state like this, you know, maybe it's not just such a safe place for people of color to work in. If, if we're going to be working for places where they threaten our jobs with silence, you know, this, is, this feels silencing to me, to tell me don't get your name in the paper and don't criticize the military. It feels like you're saying when things go wrong, don't tell people. Let's keep it in-house where we can squash it on our own. And that's, that feels threatening to me. That's not okay because a student brought a noose because of this kind of policy, the idea that he did it because he knew he could get away with it, you know. He was only suspended for one year. Next summer, he'll be back on campus. But maybe I won't. You know, maybe that's their message. Since this happened, maybe we won't. Right, right. And and you also um, mentioned that um, that this this particular student he's not the first person to uh, to get suspended. Um, it's just there's a there's a difference between how um, the the student with the uh, uh, that used the noose uh, in a hate crime he's getting sort of preferential kind of treatment because you're. There, there, there's no additional security being offered to you and your family, uh, so that you aren't physically threatened. Uh, because what it amounts to is is more of um, that he will, you know, abide by the um, the order to stay away from you. And and we know historically that that doesn't happen. People do not honor those type of um, of jurors. Like, for instance, someone says, well, you can't go around this person. You can't call them. And time after time, people end up crossing those lines and showing up and calling. And so there's no additional security for you or your family. And uh, and you said that uh, other students have been suspended for a year for nonviolent and nonracially um, um, types of things that happen in classes. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about that as well as um, some women, other 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 teachers and other uh, other college districts recently, black women teachers, have come to the forefront around what has happened to them in, in, in their regular trying, you know, their regular sort of line of duty as, as professional uh, educators. Oh, yeah. Um, I kind of feel like these punishments, you know, the punishment needs to fit the crime. I think if you have the privilege of being a student, and we know that in our community it is a privilege to be a student. It is not easy for a lot of of, of people to go to college, especially if they have to work, um, you know, to earn money, if they have families, if they have a record of any kind. You know, getting to the college campus for a lot of students, that in and of itself is a feat. And so to have somebody show up and disrespect it, the way that this student and other students do when they when they take it to a violent place, you know, or they threaten my job or threaten me or call me out of my name. You know what I'm saying? I mean, 
I was a student, you were a student, we all had props that we maybe didn't care for, but it never would have dawned on me to threaten one of them. I mean, I basically felt like I, I'm honored to be here. I'm lucky to be on a college campus. I'm not going to mess it up by, you know, by hurting someone. Now, that's not to say that I wasn't politically active because I was. I absolutely was, and we had racist incidents on my campus when I was a student, too, which we can talk about a little later, but, you know, there's a process. There's a process, and so when the process is jacked, you know, if a student is, is, is belly bumps somebody and he gets expelled and finds himself unable to go to campuses anywhere in North Carolina, and then a student brings a noose and he gets a temporary one-year um, suspension, that doesn't mesh. You know, that doesn't mesh. That that doesn't seem like the punishment fits the crime. And, again, I mean, it's this whole good old boy, southern politics, the way things work. And I get that, and I get that. I moved to a town where that's the dynamic. But this is 2014. You know what I'm saying? And people need we, – we have to accept the fact that our demographics in our country are changing. Last year was the first year that more white people died than – white babies were born. The general trend, the dynamic is we're moving towards a minority majority in our country where people of color will be the majority. And I say that not to threaten or scare white people, but to encourage them to think about what that means, right? To live in a country where you're not the majority means you need to start understanding more about the minority, right, as we have done in the past uh, hundreds of years here. We understand white culture because we're exposed to it on the daily, right? But now it's time for us to really get into the e-service unum, right, to really start to buy into all of the things that we talk about in our important documents and, you know, and the things that we hold dear as a nation. It's time to start to living up to that promise um, because we're all here and, and we're part of this, this great country. And in order to keep it great or make it great, if some people don't believe we've reached that goal yet, we have a lot of work to do, but we have to do it together. And threatening isn't going to get it done. Injustice isn't going to get it done. Inequality isn't going to get it done. What's going to get it done is people buckling down and learning what this country really is and, and abiding by those important documents that, that we hold so dear. You know, we all deserve that. We all deserve to live in a country where we can be truly free. And I can't be free when there's somebody who thought the way he could resolve his anger towards me is to bring a noose to school. And then to have administrators co-signing on that in the sense that while they did suspend him, um, not one of them, not one of them came to my office to check on me. You mentioned security. No. Uh, Yeah, okay, so we have campus security. They don't have weapons. You know, they have golf carts, and they drive around, and they have a camera system. But... No, no, no security was offered, no, no condolences, no, um, no acknowledgement. Just, you know, this is awful. Someone threatened my life, and, and my, I have kids, I have a family, I have students and friends and people that love me. I mean, to minimize my life that way by acting like it's not important, not only is it not important, but if you could just be nicer, then these things wouldn't happen. I don't understand what planet they think we live on, where they think they can talk to me like that and think that it's okay. You know, whether we live in a right-to-work state or not, the fact of the matter is I do work there, and I am a member of that campus community. I help students start an LGBT club. 
I support this male minority mentoring program as a mentor. I'm a college advisor for students. Uh, I am the chairperson of the member welfare committee. Uh, let's see, I, I started a scholarship. I asked my family to help fund a $10,000 scholarship for black men. And when a black woman uh, who was our personnel director died on our campus, I, uh, I, I started a scholarship for black women. Um, you know, the things that I do on that campus, I'm, I'm there. I'm present to the moment. I'm giving everything I have and throwing my heart over the line for my students and to be treated with a level of disdain and the disgust and the hatred that I feel, it's just wrong. And, uh, and I'm not the only one. As you mentioned, uh, Sister Shannon Gibney, Gibney in uh, Minnesota, uh, she was talking about structural racism with her students and, and three white students got offended and went to the administration and she got a written disciplinary in her personnel file. Uh, Sister uh, uh, Ursula Orr recently at Arizona was thrown for jaywalking, thrown down on the street by a cop, and her, you know, her body was exposed, it was disrespected, and all of that for jaywalking. I mean, every day we hear these stories. There's a book called um, uh, Presumed Incompetent, and it names, it details the stories of women of color in this country and what we deal with in academia that to the point where a lot of women wouldn't even tell their stories to the book. They were so traumatized and triggered by even talking about the things that we go through that they couldn't even get their stories out. I mean, this is what we're dealing with here, and everybody knows education is the silver bullet. Education is what, what is used to justify discriminating. In other words, I can't hire you or I really want to, but since you don't have your degree, right, education can be used to discriminate. We all know how important an education is and that to have faculty members putting themselves out there like this, giving everything we have, you know, and then being treated like this, being treated like we're even less than human, it's not okay. It's not okay. This, this okay. is the injustice. Uh, we're listening to um, Professor Williams, uh, black sociology instructor at Coastal Carolina Community College in Jacksonville, North Carolina, who was a victim of a, a hate crime. And the student who um, uh, who was the uh, person who hung the noose outside of her door or threatened to do so was found guilty of ethnic intimidation and communicating a threat in state court. And uh, and so the professor, her college, her her job is still in jeopardy uh, presently, and um, her allies have been threatened. And uh, so she um, has started a fund uh, to be able to hire an attorney. Uh, GoFundMe.com forward slash fight hyphen the hyphen hate hyphen in hyphen NC for North Carolina. So GoFundMe.com, fight the hate in NC for North Carolina. And um, the professor, uh, Professor Williams, is at the um, Coastal Carolina Community College uh, in Jacksonville, North Carolina. And we're going to bring her back on a little bit um, later on in, in the in the month, maybe uh, maybe next week to talk further about about the case. But just wanted to let everyone know about that. Um, 
that hate crimes are still happening. This professor, Professor Williams, is uh, is a graduate of Stanford University, so she she was out here for a little bit before she uh, relocated to uh, to this community college district, and uh, and she hails from from Chicago originally. That's where she was raised. So uh, I just want to let you know about um, this case. Uh, if you want to hear her. Full interview, just listen in the archives to um, the interview, which was first broadcast last Friday on the 18th of this month, July. And we are so happy to have in the studio um, Geraldine Wah. Congratulations on um, all of these wonderful organizations that you founded and, and your uh, sort of passing the torch after 35 years. Yeah, thank How you, are you Wanda. doing, Gerald? Wow. I'm doing like, good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You're just like such an anchor. You you establish these great institutions in our communities. I'm gonna read your bio so people can know. Like, oh wow, he did that. Oh, he did that too. Oh my goodness, wow. Gerald <laughs> <laughs> um, Wah is the founding executive director and currently the co-director of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, or BAJI, as it's fondly known. And it was founded in Oakland in 2006 to support fair and just immigration reform and to bring African Americans together with immigration communities to fight for social and economic justice. He is a founding steering committee member of the National Black Immigration Network, a co-founder of the Priority Africa Network in Oakland, and a board member of the National Network for Immigration and Refugee Rights. For over 35 years, Gerald has been a leader in progressive social movements. He is a board member of the Interfaith Peace Builders and led its first African heritage delegation to Israel and Palestine in 2011. He served on the editorial board for War Times, Tiempo de Guerras. Is that how you pronounce it? That's good. That's good, okay. (laughs) 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 An anti-war national newspaper from 2002 to 2004. He is a former executive director of the Black Coalition on AIDS in San Francisco and co-founder and former board chair of the HIV Education and Prevention Project of Alameda County. Uh, He is a longtime leader in the racial justice and anti-apartheid movements in the United States. In addition, he has served as a strategic planning consultant for social justice, uh, immigrant rights, HIV-AIDS, and health-related organizations. So again, uh, Gerald, thank you so much for joining us this morning to talk about uh, Baji. Uh, but I thought since, um, you know, in reading your bio that that you've actually uh, visited uh, Israel and Palestine just three yes. short years ago. Maybe we could start there because that this what's going on there presently is something that's, gosh, it's really you know um, paramount in our in our minds and hearts because it's just you know so much violence happening right there and right now with you know Israel bombing Palestine. Yes, it's a tragedy that continues to happen because the world continues to let it happen, especially the U.S. support for Israel has allowed it to dominate that uh, the Palestinians and to uh, continue to occupy territory uh, where Palestinians uh, are supposedly to set up their 
their independent states. So uh, I think the United States bears a huge responsibility for the for the treacherous, murderous regime in in uh, Israel. Yeah, yeah. What did you find when you went to, um, to Israel and Palestine? Um, I've never been there, and I don't know how many of my listeners have have visited. Uh, tell us about about your trip and um, and the uh, the interfaith peace builders, uh, the organization um, that the African Heritage Delegation um, went with. Well, the first time I went uh, was in 2008 with a delegation organized by the Third World Coalition of the American Friends Service Committee and coordinated by interfaith peace builders. Uh, And that was a people of color delegation. Uh, And then when I came back, I joined the board of of IFPB, Interfaith Peace Builders, and began uh, talking about organizing an African heritage delegation, which we then uh, took to Palestine in 2011. We took 14 African Americans uh, to to really understand the conflict and the violation of human rights going on against Palestinians and to come home to help support the cause of human rights uh, in that region. And so uh, we had a very extensive trip. We were there for two weeks, and we met with Palestinian human rights groups, Palestinian uh, faith groups, with uh, Israelis who were against the occupation and were organizing against the occupation. We met with uh, people of African descent who are Palestinian uh, to understand their issues. Uh, We met with Arab Jews who are also discriminated against in in Israel. And so uh, we had a pretty extensive look at what was going on. We spent the night in Bethlehem with a family, and we spent the night in Berlin, which is a small uh, village, one of the villages that uh, every Friday demonstrates against the apartheid wall that the Israelis are building to uh, to separate uh, the Palestinians from the Israelis. And so uh, we got a really extensive and good look at the what it means to live under occupation in Palestine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, talk about, just briefly, um, the people of African descent in Palestine. Uh, Who are they? There's a, there are, there's a long history of people migrating uh, to to Israel because it's the Holy Land, and so a lot of people migrate there, Muslims and Christians, from the African continent uh, to settle uh, in many, many cases. And so there's, in in Jerusalem, there is a African quarter where uh, people of African descent uh, live and congregate. And what uh, we learn f- from discussing things with them is that they – consider themselves Palestinians, but they also uh, are very much in touch with their African roots. And they say that they are discriminated against because they're African and because they're Palestinian, and so they get a double whammy. Uh, and uh, they are they are very much against 
the occupation of East Jerusalem and the West Bank and Gaza, and they are part of the resistance to to the encroachments of the Israeli government and, and the settlers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how how did you happen to um, uh, become, you know, interested globally in in the in the rights of 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 people as you are um with regards to um you know immigration and immigration rights um and 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 I know that you were one of the observers um during the um the first election um the free election in in uh in in South Africa and uh and your work with the anti-apartheid in the apartheid anti-apartheid movement you know is is really well known um respected and documented uh so wondering sort of how how you came to this type of work that you do um you know which is both uh national you know locally nationally and globally recognized and oh back to what you, what we were just talking about did any publications come out of your your work your trip there, both the first one and the second one? Uh, to answer the the second question first, uh, yeah. if you go to ifpb.org on the on the web, you'll find a report from our trip uh, okay. and also a report from the second African Heritage trip that Daryl Jordan, who's also a board member of IFPB, led uh, in, in 2012. And so uh, you'll find that you'll also find applications for the upcoming uh, African Heritage delegation that's going this October. So I would encourage folks of African descent to to look at that and consider going. It's it's really a life changing experience. My own development as an activist, I think, initially began when I was in college at the University of Wisconsin uh, in the '60s and. Uh, uh, the Madison campus was known as the Berkeley of the Midwest, and so there was a lot of activism on the on the campus. And so I, as a young student, began to be involved in demonstrations against the Vietnam War. We shut down the university uh, in, with a demand to establish a black studies, African-American studies department, which we won. Uh, and so that for me was kind of an awakening that you know people organized together could make substantial social change in this country and so i carried that to me when i moved to seattle in in 1973 and began uh, uh a career of being an organizer uh in the anti apartheid movement i organized around police brutality in seattle and whole range of racial justice issues and so uh, came to the Bay Area in 1986 and continued mm-hmm. yeah wow so so tell us about 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 Baji and and how how that organization um, came to be founded and um, you know some of the uh, the benchmarks um, mm-hmm. that, that have occurred over over your tenure there so yeah, uh, if you remember back to 2006, Wanda, there were these mass demonstrations uh, for immigrant rights and against uh, this repressive legislation that was pending in Congress. And indeed, those were the largest demonstrations in the history of this country. 
And uh, as a result of that, Reverend Kelvin Souls, who I've been working with in Priority Africa Network, uh, he is an immigrant from South Africa who was pastoring an African-American church in Oakland, and Reverend Phil Lawson, who is a veteran of the civil rights and human rights movement in this country. The two of them called a meeting of activists that they had worked with over the years, black and African-American and and black immigrant activists, to say, we're looking out over these demonstrations and we don't see any black people. Uh, So where is the African-American voice speaking out in support of immigrant rights, and where are the black immigrants? Uh, So we decided that we would organize around this as a racial justice issue, that we saw the immigrant rights movement as part and parcel of the struggle against racism in this country that began with the decimation of the Native Americans and with the enslavement of African Americans. And so we decided that we would take this issue to the African American community uh, and we would develop a framework and analysis that linked the issues of African Americans, racism and economic exploitation to, to the same issues that immigrants are facing. And so we began to develop programs, we began to develop uh, uh, campaigns. We we took this struggle to community groups, to African American churches, and then we began to look at how we create opportunities for dialogue between African Americans and immigrants, particularly uh, Black immigrants. And so uh, we began to connect with African immigrant communities across the country. And in 2009, uh, Baji and some of our allies formed the Black Immigration Network, which is a national network of black-led organizations, both African-American and black immigrant, that is engaged in, in education and training and campaigns in support of specific issues. So uh, over the last eight years, we have been engaged in looking at how we can bring the issues of immigrant rights and racial justice to a broader and broader audience and begin to organize in in black communities across the country with our allies. And uh, uh, today, the Black Immigration Network uh, uh, has begun to develop campaigns around specific issues. We just had a... Black Immigration Network Kinship Assembly at the Little Haiti Cultural Center in Miami last May. And out of that gathering, three priorities emerged and and three working groups to implement the priorities. One priority is the issue of mass criminalization and linking the mass incarceration of African Americans with with the mass detention and deportation of black and brown immigrants. Uh, the the issue of the new Jim Crow, as Michelle Alexander calls it, the, the mass incarceration of African Americans is, is being extended into the immigration field where black and brown immigrants are being disproportionately uh, detained and deported uh, in this country. And so we want to link those issues and we're beginning to develop national campaigns around that. We also have a campaign uh, around the issue of Haitian family reunification. 
there are 110,000 Haitians in Haiti that have been granted family visas, but but because of the backlog in the immigration system, they won't be able to get here for eight or ten years. And given the horrendous conditions in Haiti after the earthquake and even pre-earthquake, we feel that it's incumbent upon the Obama administration to to expedite those visas, similar to the program that they have for Cuban families. Uh, And so we have a national petition uh, to to the Obama administration to to create a Haitian family reunification parole program that would expedite those visas. And lastly, we have a task force on, on economic justice where we're looking to support efforts to organize workers uh, in uh, across the U.S., particularly Afri- in industries where there are African American and immigrant workers that are are fighting for their economic rights. So, those that's some of the work that we're doing. We're also doing that in the local cities where we have uh, Baji organizers in Phoenix, in New York, in Oakland, and in Atlanta. Yeah, I had known that Baji was um, was a national organization now with with uh, with with regards to having <clears throat> chapters in other cities. Um, when when did that happen? I missed that completely. Yeah, it's happened over the years. The first one we established was in Phoenix because uh, our national organizer lived in Phoenix at the time. Uh, and then, uh, well, well, that's not true. First, we organized was in Oakland because that's our home city. Uh, so we had a local organizer, and then Phoenix, uh, and then when our national organizer, who is now our co-director, Opal Tometi, moved to New York, we established uh, a local organizing committee in New York. Uh, and uh, lastly, we uh, two years ago hired an organizer in Atlanta uh, to begin to look at how we bring African-Americans and immigrants together in a local organizing committee in Atlanta. So, so uh, and we have our sites on Los Angeles and uh, Miami as, as other areas where we want to expand. Oh, yeah, right, definitely. Yeah, I was looking uh, on your website, uh, blackalliance.org, and the program's that there there are quite a few programs. Um I remember attending many of the African diaspora dialogues, um and African American immigrant dialogues mm-hmm, which are, mm-hmm. are really, really wonderful. Um yeah, quite provocative opportunities to to get together with others and just hear about what's happening, um you know, both in this country as well as outside of this country and there's so much overlap. Yeah, those African diaspora dialogues are a critical part of how we operate. The dialogues bring African Americans and immigrants of African descent together to talk about what are the myths and stereotypes and the issues that divide us and what are our common commonalities that, that can unite us and begin to look at how we overcome the myths, stereotypes, and issues that divide us and focus on the issues that unite us and really begin to uh, uh, tackle issues that are common to all of our communities. And so 
uh, we've held these dialogues across the country, uh, and uh, we are now in the process of formalizing a training program uh, to train members of the Black Immigration Network on how to use this tool to bring communities together. Excellent, excellent. And um, this weekend, um, there is a Passing the Torch event. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, right, yeah. T- uh, this Sunday. Um, <clears throat> why don't you tell our audience about, about the uh, the Passing the Torch and who's going to be, who you, whose hand are you putting it in? <laughs> well, for the past year, uh, I've been a co-director with Opal Tometi. Uh, she was our national organizer and Last year, she became our co-director along with me, and I will be stepping down on July 31st, and she will become the executive director. So this ceremony really is to to literally pass the torch to her. She's of a younger generation uh, with new ideas, newer ways of organizing, new energy, and I'm stepping down to pass the torch to that to her and to that new generation. And uh, so it's an exciting thing for me because what I've seen is that many, many organizations have fumbled the ball in terms of uh, uh, developing new leadership, training new leadership, and, and passing the torch. We, we see in many, many cases uh, O-line leadership holding on uh, to leadership and not developing the younger generations. And so... I'm very proud to 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 say that Abaji is not one of those organizations, and so uh, we'll be at Everett and Jones Barbecue uh, at Second and Broadway in Oakland this Sunday, July 27th, from two to five, to uh, to celebrate my leadership and Opal's leadership, and to pass the torch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's going to really be exciting, and. Um... Yeah, people who want more information, they can uh, call area code 510-663-2254 or Gerald at blackalliance.org um, if you want to email him. Uh, so what are you going to be doing um, after the torch is passed? Are you still going to be working with Baji or developing another organization? Um, what, what are your plans? Well, I would say I'm I'm moving on, but I'm not moving out of the movement. So I will still continue to to be a part of uh, Baji's work. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be doing consulting work for social justice organizations, doing strategic planning and program planning and meeting facilitation, and also, you know, developing uh, some workshops around. Uh, African American immigrant alliance building issues. Uh so I will still be active and I have uh a lot of personal projects that I've been that have been on hold for many years and I'm gonna begin to look at how I can develop. hmm Yeah. Can you share any of those projects with us? Yeah, one of the projects is uh Relates to my experience as a leader in the anti-apartheid movement. I have a couple of friends and colleagues that have uh, a poster collection of posters from the anti-apartheid movement. So I want to create a, a exhibit, uh, not only of the posters but also of the 
the flyers, the buttons, the photos, the uh, video footage from the anti-apartheid movement in the Bay Area and and uh, have an exhibit hopefully at the Oakland Museum or an, another venue that's similar to that, but to really, uh, and along with that, a you know some some lecture series, some cultural series that really look at the history of the anti-apartheid movement and, and brings that alive, and you know begins to educate generations who were not around during that period in history, or who were too young to remember them, and so uh, to really begin to lift up that experience that was so vital to the development of the of the uh, social justice movement in the Bay Area and across the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why Why is that important, um, the history of uh, what happened uh, in anti-apartheid uh, South Africa and, you know, the recent, you know, transition of, of you know, the first black president there, um, Nelson Mandela? Um, so the, why, is, why is that important, um, that that history remain paramount or in the forefront? Well, I think it it is important because it is an example of international solidarity that we need to to hold on to and and bring forward into into the current day. I think that the African American community in this country led a social movement and for the first time were able to change foreign policy under a Republican administration, the administration of Ronald Reagan. Uh, that is a tremendous feat, and that history is not well known. You know, from the 40s forward to the 90s, the African Americans were critical uh, to the movement for social justice on the African continent, and particularly South Africa. And uh, we need to claim that history, understand that history, and, and bring it forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was wondering if you could talk um, in closing about just being um, sort of a citizen, a diaspora citizen par excellence. Um, I, I, <laughs> I remember many times, you know, I <clears throat> tried to be trying to get in touch with you and, and, and Nunu, and you'd be traveling somewhere, you know, um, under the uh, auspices of Abaji or Priority African Network or both. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. somewhere in the world, you know, sort of um I guess uh doing some alliance building and some you know support for for Africans, you know, you know, looking at the immigrant situation um uh, from Senegal to France um and and the boat people, you know, yeah. Africans trying to get there and dying in the, in the Atlantic Ocean and being turned around, which you know we we see here often. You know, we're looking at Haiti and Cuba and other black immigrants, you know, trying to get into this country. You know, not to mention those axis of evil countries um, where people just, you know, just get turned away, turned away on GP. It's like, oh, you're from Mali. Like, no, you can't come here. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I wanted you to talk a little bit about about that, you know, being um, sort of a yeah diaspora citizen. Well, you know, I'm I'm very clear that that the liberation of African Americans here in this country is, is bound up with the liberation of Black people from all over the world. Uh, wherever you are in the world, if you're Black, you're catching hell. Uh, 
there is an anti-black racism that, that permeates the whole world, and we need to see it as a global system of racism and white supremacy in link with our partners across the globe that are fighting the same fight. And so that's what we try to do. I was fortunate enough to grow up uh, in the 60s and 70s as a young man and was exposed to leaders of the liberation movements from across the African continent who at that time were fighting for their liberation and uh, formed uh, at that time uh, a global consciousness and a global view of the, of the struggle uh, that has stayed with me till today. And, and on the issues of immigration, uh, Africans uh, have been, uh, from the Africans from the continent, Africans from the Caribbean, Afro-Latinos have all been victimized, have all been really uh Invisibilized in the struggle for for justice around this issue, and so we want to lift that up and to really begin to bring the African diaspora together. Whether you're in, in, in this country, whether you're part of the the old diaspora that has roots in in slavery, or what is being called the neo diaspora, folks coming here in droves from Africa and the Caribbean and from Latin America that are that are being driven from their home countries because U.S. government and U.S. corporations are distorting economies across the world uh, and in creating a situation where people cannot make a living in their home country, and so they come here. And when they come here, they're labeled as criminals, they're labeled as illegal aliens, uh, and they're subject to, to detention and deportation without any due process, without a lawyer, without... Uh, any kind of legal representation. And so we know that if we allow that to happen, that it destroys the human rights of all of us. And so uh, our effort really is to is to bring that African diaspora together to fight white supremacy and to look at how we can, on a global scale, begin to dismantle this evil system. And so uh, part of that entails going where people are across the continent of Africa. We just had a trip to Haiti uh, last June, uh, a year ago June, uh, to look at the human rights violations that caused Haitians to to leave their, their home country. And so uh, really making those connections and bringing them back to the United States, to our African-American community, to understand how the U.S. operates in the rest of the world and how the, the lives of black people across the world are affected. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Gerald, for joining us, and congratulations on such a wonderful tenure, and looking forward to seeing you at the uh, Passing the Torch, celebrating the leadership of Gerald Lenoir and Ovo Tometi um, this, um, this Sunday, uh, yeah. July 27th, um, Two to five at Everett and Jones Barbecue, Second and Broadway in Oakland. You'll be able to witness and congratulate Gerald and Opal as they make the symbolic, you know, um, passing of the legacy, which is going to continue. Gerald's going to not disappear; he's going to still be around, but he's going to be doing more. 
<laughs> which is really excellent. And uh, looking forward to your joining us again to talk about where that first exhibit is going to be happening, uh, sort of looking at the legacy of um, the global movement against uh, the tyranny of apartheid, uh, which and it was it was a sustained and very long and sort of far-reaching movement uh, against the South African uh, apartheid regime. Very successful yeah. and very far-reaching and a great model. We should yes. do something similar to Israel. <clears throat> yes, um, yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, so thank, thank you, again, you Wanda. So, I, appreciate, I appreciate you having me on your program. Oh, you're quite welcome, and I look forward to seeing you on Sunday. Okay, see you then. All right, peace and blessings. All right, peace. And, again, you can um, uh, find out more by going to the website, uh, blackalliance.org. Uh, we are joined in the studio by a wonderful author, uh, uh, Dr. Martha R. Uh, Beretta. Am I pronouncing it correct? Beretta. Beretta, right. <laughs> um, yeah, Dr. Beretta is author of Obi. Uh, Seminole Maroon Freedom Fighter, and we're just so excited to be speaking to her uh, as Blue Ocean Press, and it's uh, it's part of a series uh, of books uh, around the topic of black liberation, and as young adult historic fiction, however, uh, I'm not a young adult, but I love the book. <laughs> So I highly recommend it to everyone. Uh, you're gonna fall in love with um, with Obi and his uh, his friends who escape from the plantation and um, uh, join in um, with the the Seminole Indians, uh, you know, Africans and Seminoles to to start a movement which which still has a resonance today, particularly um, when one thinks about liberation, one thinks about resistance uh, to slavery, um, and one thinks about the principles that such such people must have embodied. So welcome to the program. And maybe we'll start with maybe telling our audience about the book, and then I'll read your bio. All right. Well, first of all, Wanda, thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, really appreciate it, and thank you for your comments about uh, Obi. I'm happy that you enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> this book is a young adult book, but it's for adults and families. Uh, it's the story of, of a young man who is 15 years old. He's enslaved on a plantation, a cotton plantation in South Carolina, and he is approached by this mysterious African who turns out to be the best thing that has happened to him. Uh, this person is like no other African that he's ever seen, and the African's name is Squashy. And what happens is through the learnings, through what he learns from Squashy, he is actually transformed um, in his mind from a slave to a freedom seeker. And he joins with his friends, and they escape to Florida, which was the Southern Underground Railroad. Through the, the learnings that he's gotten from Squashy, uh, Jack was his original name, or his given name by the slave owner. He is given the name Obi by um, Squashy, and he develops the traits that are essential for his becoming a, a maroon leader 
and establishing a maroon village. He uh, ends up fighting in the Gullah Wars of Independence. Um, They've usually been referred to as the Seminole Wars, especially the Second Seminole War, but actually uh, the Second Seminole War was a Gullah War of Independence, and uh, he ended up going uh, when the Indians were forced to go to Indian Territory. This young man, who is now a man, uh, takes his family and his village, and they escape to Mexico. And it's his story of how he escapes from the plantation, how he uh, joins with the Seminole Indians, how he establishes a village, and his struggle to remain free. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, um, just reading um, uh, from the uh, the back of the book, just where there's a short bio for you, um, it says that, um, that you are founder and executive director of the Blanchard House Museum of African American History and Culture of Charlotte County, Florida, and you've been an educator for over 25 years, and uh, you research, lecture, write, and create exhibits related to untold and untaught history. You're the author of six books, including um, the tribute, the tribute, tribute Woods Book of Values, uh, ages nine to thirteen. Uh, the one we're speaking of, Omawali. Uh, no, actually, no, it's different. Omawali, the child returns home, and preserving cultural integrity in the age of globalization. An educational response with Jaja Cummings. And um, and when I visited the website, um, there's a whole website that looks at um, the uh, maroon culture. And what's really lovely about this book is that it's it, it offers the reader an opportunity to opportunity to reflect on the lessons that these young people um, are getting from from the uh, the elder um, who who have sort of appears out of nowhere. Um, uh, to, to help them sort of think about their options. Like you don't have to necessarily be remain enslaved, but before you can free your body, you have to learn about what this freedom, what does it mean? And and I was just thinking, just as I was uh articulating this question, um, I'm sure I'm sure, you know, in your research, uh, to write the book, that a lot of times, um, you know, we don't we don't think in the present about how difficult it might have been to entertain a concept of freedom when you have been socialized in, into captivity for generations. It was uh it is it was a difficult choice and it was a difficult choice for, for Jack, the young man who became Obi. Uh he was offered the opportunity to become a house servant, which would have made his life as a slave to some degree uh, somewhat better, although we know that the house servants were on 24-7 and actually wasn't the freedom that one really thought they could have, but they had more of the material things that were like the owners. And so for just a minute there, um, Jack was very confused about being able to be a be a have a better condition as a enslaved person than having his freedom, and that's because of the way that he was socialized. That he was a slave, he was inferior, uh, according to the Bible. This was to be his lot in life, and so what had to happen is to undo 
all of those myths and stereotypes about who one is so that one can move further, one can become who one really is. And Jack was born to be a free person. But because of all of the myths and stereotypes that from birth he had been socialized into, he actually was afraid to step out into the freedom. And he had to see himself as a free person. He had to believe that he was other than the image that was created for him in order for him to pursue his freedom. So it was not an easy step. Uh, First of all, one's belief system had to be outside of that of an enslaved. But secondly, there were issues. Uh, You know, usually most of the young people who escaped were young men who did not have families. It was very difficult, and this was one of the controls that the slave owners held over slaves, is was their family, their family connection. Many times they did not want to leave. The one thing that they felt that they they owned was a family, which they did not own. The, you know, they belonged to the slave owner, but those bonds of love were there. And so leaving one's family, leaving one's friend, leaving what was known was a very difficult choice for many of those who escaped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I'm going to go back to your, your longer bio and let audience know that, that you're a fifth-generation uh, Floridian and the descendant of the first African-Americans to settle in Punta Gorda. <clears throat> you grew up in Punta Gorda, attended and graduated from all-black and all-black segregated schools, um, and you earned your B.A. and M.A. in speech pathology from Western Michigan University and the University of Michigan, respectively. Uh, the EDS in Student Personal Services and Ph.D. in Counselor Education from the University of Florida, so you came back home. (laughs) And (laughs) and you have uh, more than 25 years' experience as an educational consultant specializing in issues related to race, gender, cultural, and socioeconomic diversity. So um, when we were talking uh, yesterday off the air about about this wonderful story, I was telling you how I, I shared it with all my friends <laughs> on on Sunday. They were all jotting down the titles. Like I said, oh, this is such a great book, you all. You got to get it. And and we're gonna actually, it's gonna be one of our our um, twelve books that we're going to um, have people read over the over the period of a year, beginning in October, um, as a part of the. Um, off a uh, commemoration uh, book club, and and I was asking you about just this whole Seminole um, maroon history, and wondered uh, sort of how you came uh, to know about the maroon societies and maroon communities, and and were you a descendant of of the Seminole maroons? And so you told me this great story, um, but before we start there, I was wondering Punta Gorda. Uh, that's a black town, and um, yeah, no, talk about not that. really. Was not Ponte black. Florida, oh, okay. uh, there are only about three uh, percent African Americans uh-huh. who live here. However, mm-hmm. uh, in 1885, uh, 15 men came here to uh, bring the ra- the railroad from Tampa down. This was going to be the terminus, the end of it. And of those 15 men, uh, eight were white and seven were black. And what was unusual about this town was that these 15 men built and settled this town together. 
and it made race relations in Ponta Gorda somewhat different. In terms of when uh, Ponta Gorda, the name Ponta Gorda was actually changed from Trebu to Ponta Gorda, and when the name was changed, four of the 34 signers to incorporate the city of Ponta Gorda were African American, which was really very much unheard of uh, during that era. And so it was uh, different in that respect. And my, yes, my um, ancestors were some of the first uh, African Americans to come here. My great uncle was very instrumental um, in the town. He held the first organized religious service, which was an integrated service under a, a, a hut here in Ponta Gorda. And my great grandfather was the first fireman at the um, ice house. So we have a, a long history in this town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds really. And, sounds and really nice. It sounds different. Yeah, uh, but you mentioned that you um, uh, that even though the town was founded by um, uh, a multiple a, a racial group, like yeah, mixed group. Yeah, if you had you you went to all black segregated schools. How did that happen? Well, um, 1885 they came here. I think it was 1896, 97 that um, the um, Percy versus uh, Ferguson was passed. And, of course, uh, the law of the land was segregation. And so custom changed, uh, law changed. And so uh, from that time on, you know, there were all black schools, you know, my uh, mother who lived here, her sisters, they all had to, at that time, um, well, my mother's aunts were sent to a, a private school, Bolin Hill, that, you know, one of the private schools that they had for African Americans, because they, there were no schools, especially high schools, there were no high schools provided for African Americans. So my mother and her sisters had to live away with relatives to get the high school education. And it went came time for my generation uh, to go to high school. I'd gone to the segregated elementary school here, but my uh, mother went to the school board and said that she did not want me to ride the bus. The black kids would have to ride a bus 50 miles round trip, 25 miles to Fort Myers to Dunbar High School, and 25 miles back. And because just of what she had experienced, she did not want that for me. So she went to the school board and asked for room and board so that I could live with my aunt who taught school in Sarasota. Well, of course they said no, that if they did that for me, they'd have to do it for every other black child. So they took two little wooden portables and added them to our elementary school, which brought it up to 7th and 8th grade. Uh, We never got a black high school. Before that happened, the schools did desegregate. But I finished from Booker High School in Sarasota. And so all of my education... Uh, had been in predominantly black schools. I always say, though, uh, when I left Booker High School, I went to Western Michigan University, which was a, the the university had 15,000 people. I came from a town of 3,000 people, and I came from a a segregated uh, situation. But the type of learning and the values that I learned in my school, I did not miss a beat. I went from Michigan on to grad school, you know, on to, you know, specialist and doctorate, and it was from that basic foundation that I got at Booker High School that made the difference for me. Mhm. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's really great. And and you know, you're the mother of of two um, you know, really accomplished uh adults, um, you know, with uh your daughter, you know, went to Stanford and Harvard a law school and, and she's in um the District of Columbia and is senior counsel to the assistant secretary of the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education. It's like, wow, just chip off the old block, huh? (laughs) And she's getting married on August 16th. (laughs) Oh, congratulations. Oh, how wonderful. thank you. Wow, that's awesome. And then your son, uh, Jaja. um, Jaha. Pardon me, say it again? Jaha. Yeah, Jaha. Oh, I, okay. Yeah, that's what I thought I said. <laughs> Jaha uh, graduated from Dartmouth uh, and is a lecturer, businessman, and publisher in Guam. And so is he, uh, he collaborates with you, right? Yes, he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, uh, He is a publisher. Actually, he published this book, and he and I have written and uh, published books together. Hmm. Nice. Yes. Which ones? Uh, he and I did um, Omawali, which is a um, the child returns home, and that's actually for adults about teaching traditional values to their children. And we also uh, presented at an international education conference, um, and did this book came out of that, preserving cultural integrity in the age of globalization, an educational response. So we that was our presentation at an international education conference. Uh, we have been um, actually studying values and values formation for a very long time now. And finally, um, I think we decided, or I decided, and, and he agreed with you know the publication, to take it to the level of our youth, to start with them. And, and actually, Obi is a book about values. That's what it's about. It's mm-hmm. about choosing values, sustainable values, so that one can create the kind of free and autonomous lifestyle that one desires. Right, yeah. Yeah, I just love, um, you know, love these boys and and um, <laughs> and, and their encounter with, with the, you know, the African, you know, elder and 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 just the way he sort of um you know tells him well if you know if you want to you want to be free then you know you got to come here and to these these various you have to come here every I don't remember what was it every Sunday I mean I don't remember the day that he they had to evening. come but evenings yeah over a period a extended period of time to prepare yeah. for freedom I was wondering if you could maybe share something um from the book um of your choice, or maybe from that section, and then something else. And and as you, um, unless you already have it all ready to go, maybe talk about um, sort of the relationship between uh, uh, the freed or formerly enslaved Africans and the Seminole Indians. Okay. Uh, well, I'll, I'll read you a little bit uh, about um, from the African. Is that all right? Okay. Oh, certainly. Yes. Yes. Um, the African, and, and if, when when people buy the book, I I always have to look at the picture of Jack then and the demeanor of the African. The African, one late afternoon, Jack sneaked off to the pond to go fishing and caught six big fish. The sun was going down by that time, and he must hurry back to the quarters. Smiling to himself, he gathered the fish, 
picked up his pole and was turning to leave when he almost jumped out of his skin. Standing behind him, a tall black man seemed to appear from nowhere. Boy. He had neither heard nor felt the man approaching, but now he dropped both his pole and his fish and backed away. Too startled even to run, he felt numb. All he could do was stand trembling, his pounding heart surely audible to the stranger. Why didn't the man say or do something? As he stared, Jack noticed his buckskin leggings, moccasins, and a beaded sash across the left shoulder of a shirt that almost reached to his knees. On his right shoulder, a beaded pouch hung, and four pieces of silver shaped like moons dangled from his neck. Two silver bracelets completed his unusual costume. What was he seeing? Jack's mind raced. Here was a black man, as he was, yet utterly different. What were those lines drawn on his face? Most shocking, he had a weapon. A weapon? Jack knew very well that slaves couldn't have weapons. If Jack's muscles hadn't felt frozen, he would have reached out and touched this apparition. For what seemed more endless than a time waiting to catch a rabbit or a squirrel, he gazed at the man. His thought buzzed. Who is he? What is he? Can he be a slave like me? Why is he here? The dark, piercing eyes gazed back at him. Then the man spoke in a voice surprisingly gentle. I am Quashi. I have traveled from Florida with my Seminole brothers. We have come to tell you how you can be free. Free? Despite the sudden lump in his throat, Jack forced out the words, I am Jack. The African shook Jack's hand. Yes, he smiled. I have come to speak to you of freedom, because I too was once an enslaved on a cotton plantation as you are now. But I ran away to Florida, traveling many days and nights through swamps to avoid the slave catchers. Jack's own dark eyes opened wider. Then what? I heard that if I could reach and cross the river called St. Mary into Florida, I would be free. When I finally arrived, I was befriended by Seminole Indians. They took me to their village and gave me food, and I met the Miko, or the Seminole chief. He made me an offer I could not refuse. We can be of help to each other, he offered. If you come under my protection, of my protection or become a slave, my slave in name only, you are protected by law from the slave catchers. Legally, you cannot be sent back to your master in South Carolina. I thought, wow, what do I have to do in return? Well, we need only to be brothers in the fight to protect our land and your freedom. If you will join us in fighting against our enemies, we will protect you. And each year, if you give me a small tribute or amount of what you grow, that will be sufficient. In his eagerness to hear more, Jack found himself moving closer to the African. Do you live with the Indians? Why did they even call you a slave if you weren't? It was just the word they used to indicate that the Seminole chief would protect me. I live near my Indian brothers. To them, it means nothing like what you might understand as being a slave. It means that I have my own village with others like me, slaves who have run away from white masters. We plant our own fields, we raise crops and stock. In return, once a year, we give the chief some of our products. But as you can see, here Washi held out his musket and Jack's mouth fell open. We own weapons like these. We need them to hunt and defend ourselves from slave catchers. And we can travel wherever and whenever we please, he smiled. I and my Seminole friends, we are equals.
<laughs> and, of course, Washi goes on, but that pretty much explains uh, what was Seminole slavery was like and why uh, Africans would choose to, as- to align themselves with the with Seminoles. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, and and we didn't mention that um, that the the book is actually illustrated by um, Anne. Uh, is it Shively? Shively, Shively, yeah, really Shively, and they're really really beautiful um, uh, portraits that are look like paintings. Uh, yes. As as we read the book, they're just really lovely. Uh, yeah, the learnings uh, begin, <laughs> and. And and that's that's really really interesting, um, and uh, how how Kwashi, the African, prepares the boys, um, you know, Jack and his friends, uh, uh, Sam, um, Tom, John, and Toby, to um, you know to get ready for this journey, and 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 and, be, and as as um, as Jack leaves, uh, Obi leaves. He he tells them, you know, don't ever let yourself be surprised. He gives them a lesson on, you know, like as he leaves, he gives them a lesson, and and that lesson yeah. really comes in handy, you know, um, to 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 always be aware of your surroundings. Don't let people come up on you. Don't you know, stay aware. You know, don't get so comfortable that. You 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 know you lay down your guard and and that's really wonderful mm-hmm. as well. So, I wonder if you could give our audience um, the information on how they can get a copy of the book. Okay, uh, you can get a copy of this by uh, going online to blueoceanpublications.com, or you can go to our website maroonconsciousness.com. Uh, if you go to maroonconsciousness.com, you can uh, really learn more about maroon consciousness. Um, you can learn the seven principles of maroon consciousness, and you are able to order the books from there. And um, Obi is one of our featured books on the maroons. <laughs> yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about maroon consciousness because um, you know that's. That's bigger than this one story uh, that that you share here, um, and it's something uh, that it seems to be sort of like the underlying philosophical principle that guides the the scholarship and and the the writing of of these books that that you have written and probably plan to write, and the exhibitions that you um, that you curate. Um. First of all, let me say that I was a fully grown adult who had uh, lived in Florida, went to Florida schools, but who had really never heard of maroons. Now, I, let me say I'd heard of maroons in Jamaica, but I had no idea that we had our own maroons in the state of Florida and in America and Louisiana and Virginia and wherever there was slavery, there were maroons. So that's the first misconception that there there were there were maroons everywhere that there were slavery. But the maroons in Florida are especially important because they changed Florida history and US history. You know, the Second Seminole War, which was one of the costliest wars and the deadliest wars fought against the Seminole, was a war of the Maroons, the Gullah War of Independence. So we have really designed um the website 
to help people to to know. I mean, I have talked to teachers and many people who have never heard of maroons in this country, especially never heard of the maroons in Florida. And so actually it was after putting together two exhibits, uh, one on the first Seminole War and one on the second Seminole War, that this consciousness comes to you. You you understand why uh, the Patriots' War was fought, uh, why the Negro Fort was attacked, why the Second Seminole War was fought. It was all about returning slaves. It was all about slavery because so many enslaved people were escaping to Florida. And so, you know, with the enslaved joining with the, the Indians, the Indians had to be removed. And, of course, the, the thought was if they could remove the Indians, then they could uh, take the, re-enslave the people. But just out of this, uh, studying the Maroons, which has become my favorite topic of research now, uh, as you look at their lives and look at what made them successful in their communities, by the time of the Civil War, there were at least 50 thriving maroon communities in this country. There were, believe it or not, maroon children who had never known slavery because generations of maroons could be born as a maroon. And those are kinds of things that we don't know about slavery or we don't know about maroons. But anyway, back to your question. Maroon consciousness, as we describe it, and this is just from studying the maroons themselves. It is the ultimate expression of a person's personal freedom and power. Mostly it is characterized by self-definition. When one does not accept their assigned identity and role, this is what Jack had to come to do. He had to not accept his identity and role as a slave. Self-discovery is another part of maroon consciousness, focusing on one's own knowledge and talents and skills for the common good. Uh, Jack was renamed Obi because he had the courage. He had a, a, a heart of courage, and he could be an, a leader. And so in maroon consciousness, we discover who we are, and we use that for the common good, not for ourselves individually, but we share our gifts with the common good. And finally, a commitment in maroon consciousness. We make a commitment to a sustainable value system that is the antithesis of individualism, consumerism, and materialism. And maroon consciousness can offer a model for social change and for the creation of alternative societies. But it's about definition, it is about knowing oneself, and it is about making commitment to a different way of living. That's maroon consciousness. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, would you say that some of the principles of maroon consciousness um, were present you know, in, in your life uh, growing up in um, uh, Ponta uh, Gorda? Ponta Gorda? Yes, um, very much so. At the time, I probably 
did not know them as these principles of self-emancipation. But I have to say, I, I wrote um, several years ago, and I've reissued the second um, edition of that book. It's called The Trebu Woods Book of Values. And in that book, I talk about the values with which I grew up that helped to shape me and the children that I grew up with in that era. But yes, uh, the whole thing of self-definition, um, I think that I defined myself. I would not be um, bound by the laws of segregation. Um, I knew who I was. I uh, followed my, you know, knew my purpose in life, my self-definition. I was aware of my gifts and talents, and I was open to discovering them. And I think we were all taught self-determination, that, you know, we had to, to really stay in there and stick in there to get what we wanted. You know, I left Florida. I left a town of 3,000 people. I went to a college with 15,000 people. And in Kalamazoo, Michigan, it either rained or snowed. Winters were horrific for me. I hated them. But I had to stay there. I had to do what I went there to do to achieve my goals. And those were the kinds of principles that I was taught. Self-discipline, put off your what's short-term to get what is your long-term goal, yes. Self-reliance, the ability to take care of oneself and one's needs, yes, same things that the Maroons did. And self-development uh, was very important. The, the openness and the willingness to learn new things, to strike out. Uh, I think these principles were involved in my life to leave the comfort of the south of my home uh, and to go away to go north, to go to school. But I didn't know them then as principles of self-emancipation. I hadn't studied Maroons. But actually, these Maroon principles are the principles that were taught and embodied by young people of my age. And that's, those are those principles that I put into the Trade Woods Book of Values. And that also can be purchased on this website, on the Maroon Consciousness website. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, um, before I ask you to read um, something um, else from the book, uh, I, I wanted you to... Um, uh, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about about some of the other characters. Uh, you write really good characters. Um, Aunt Sally uh, is uh, really, really close to Jack. Um, I think she, did she raise him? Yes, she did. Okay, yeah, and, and Jack, um, you know, he doesn't know how, because just the idea of, of freedom is, is, you know, a thought that, you you think if you if you're thinking freedom you think uh probably this way I sort of uh, envision it is that everyone can read your mind because you must look different <laughs> if you think in freedom like you must walk differently you must pick the cotton a little little differently because you know you're not going to be there that long doing that you know you've got other ideas and so just to have that kind of thought in your mind uh you know it seems as if you know it it could be kind of worrisome as as well as you know you know, fearsome, and and mm -hmm. so Jack doesn't know how to tell his aunt that you know he's thinking about leaving, and uh, and so it's really wonderful part of the book when when he talks to her and and Aunt Sally, she's a great great character, and then we meet Granny and you know we meet the other folks that um, 
that are like Jack's family. And and, and then we learn from the way that you tell the story that, you know, freedom is not a, a singular event. It's, it's a community event. Like when somebody, you know, is, is thinking about liberty, even if you can't go, you're free too just because this person is stepping out. And um, what if you could talk a little bit about that and, and within your own family, I think you mentioned that, um, you know, when you look uh, in your family's history that that there could have been, you know, a maroon uh, in your family uh, because of the way the story, you know, was passed down to you. It's like, yeah, hmm, you know, where else could he have gone? Well, well first of all, let me say that I must <laughs> give a shout-out and thanks to my writing group, some of who are listening um, I was in a writing group, and they just helped me so much in terms of the uh, encouragement and uh, criticism. And so I have to have to say hello to all of my writing group who may be listening there. So Sharon and Colleen and um, Roxy and Peggy Dawn and Myrna, I thank uh, all of you. For, for your input as I wrote this book. Thank you so much. Shall I read a little bit from The Plan Takes Root? Yeah, and then you're going to tell us about um, your your ancestor who could have been a Marvel? Oh, let me tell you a bit about my ancestors. I uh, am pretty sure that on both sides of my family, uh, I had some Maroons. In fact, well, there they were. On my mother's, my paternal side, my great uncle was going to be sold and he um, ran away and he stayed away for years up until the Civil War and so he was uh, a maroon probably uh, up in because he came back he had to be near the plantation in Mariana Florida so there had to be, and there were maroon communities there, and he lived in a maroon community in that area. On my father's side, a very unfortunate story, um, my great-great-grandfather's um, little sister stuck her finger in some, just she's a little girl, stuck her finger in some syrup, some molasses, and she was whipped to death. And I did, never heard about their parents, so I'm assuming that these two children were on this plantation alone. Well, he was so angered that he set the plantation on fire, and he swam across the river to West Virginia, which at that time there was a lot of abolitionist activity. And I went to check out the story, and I was told that the area that I'd heard that he went to would have been where he would have gone. And so on both sides of my family, (laughs) I have that uh, heritage. So I guess I have a little maroon consciousness in myself, which I am very proud of, very, very proud of that. Yeah. So um, I have have a question. Um, So Mm -hmm. um, the little girl, your your ancestor who was beaten to death, and that was her brother that burned down the uh, the plantation, plantation or the house? The plantation. He set the house so he, on fire. So he was really young, right? Yes, he was. 
Like he was a teenager, he could have been like Jack's age maybe, or was he younger than Jack? Yes, he was probably Jack's age. And it was interesting the way that I heard this story, and my son heard it too. My son, and this story, what family stories are just so important, because my son must have heard this story at five years of age. We were, um, had gone to a funeral, one of my um, uncle's funerals, and, you know, after the funeral, people come back to the house and they're sitting. And it was my great-uncle, um, my great-uncle Luther, who was telling the stories. And he was talking about how the family got to West Virginia and where we got to West Virginia. And that's when, and my son was just fascinated that he had had an ancestor. You know, he was sad about his great 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 aunt but he had had this very this fighter this maroon this fighter who was his this rebellious ancestor and this story stayed with my son he never forgot it he was just five years of age but he took from that story just a a different picture of what who enslaved people were and what they could do so that story was a very powerful story, not only for me, but for my child. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, right. Okay, now you can share the section that I asked, <laughs> that I asked about. With the, to answer. the plan takes root. <laughs> well, every night okay. the young men slipped into the woods for their learnings with squashing. And I, I, let me go back for a minute because I don't think we, we talked. I wrote in here about um, what the, the learnings were um, right, because right. the boys needed to know that. Okay, mm-hmm. so the boys, of course, were just very uh, happy. You know, they just you know just tell us what to do. We can set off for Florida, <laughs> and um, um, so uh, so Jack says that you know to Quashi, but how? Tell me, tell me. And Quashi said, "I will show you." Quashi held up a hand as if a warning. But first, before any actions, you must have the learnings. Uh, Jack was confused. As in in protest, he wrinkled his nose. What are the learnings? The learnings are all the ways you have to think and behave if you want to become free and to keep your freedom. These are the lessons necessary for the success of your long, long journey to freedom. They are not easy lessons. But if you want to live free, Never again to be enslaved. I must teach them to you. He paused to let this sink in. So gather your friends, meet me in this place tomorrow night, and we will begin the learnings. They are needed to take you to freedom. And this is the one that you talked about. Quashi turned to leave and then turned back to Jack. Jack's final surprise of the day was a flash of a grin on the fierce painted face. Let this be a warning to you, Jack. Never let your be surprised. Let yourself be surprised. Then, as quietly as he had come, Squashy disappeared in the woods. Now, the plan takes root. Each night, the young men slipped into the woods for their learnings with Squashy, and each moment, each morning, they went back to the woods. Every moment was spent in scouting the quarters for the foods and the tools for the journey. Yams, salt pork and vegetables, cornmeal for ash cakes, okra seeds for coffee, a knife and a hatchet and a flint for starting fires. 
When Jack decided it was time to confide in Aunt Sally, his hands were shaking. Aunt Sally, I, I think I think I decided he could barely go on. What is it, boy? Spit it out. Impatience showed on Aunt Sally's face. What's itching your britches? Jack finally blurted out the words he dreaded to say. I'm going to run away, Aunt Sally, and soon. Then he flinched as St. Aunt Sally dropped her cornbread and sat up straight in her chair. Did I hear you right? You run away? Yes, ma'am. Aunt Sally sprang out of her chair, grabbed Jack close, and hugged him tight. Baby, she crooned, I had you ever since the day they sold your mammy and pappy away, when you was only six or seven years old. So you know I will miss you, but I want you to be free. So old Aunt Sally will give you all the help she can. You can be certain of that. As he had done when he was a small boy, Jack laid his head down on Aunt Sally's chest. Thank you, Aunt Sally. Thank you for understanding. I love you. Each day after that, Aunt Sally collected small bits of food from the big house. Sometimes it was biscuits. Sometimes it was fruit. Sometimes it was leftover pieces of meat. But one night, she returned to the quarters excited. Baby, it's time. you got to leave by Saturday afternoon. What? Jack was startled. Why then, Aunt Sally? Does the master know? Not about you, she assured him. The master and missus going to be gone to a wedding at the Drake Plantation. They won't be back till Monday. So you boys better leave on Saturday, soon as you come in from the fields. But what if the master asks where I am? What will you say? Jack worried that he was placing Aunt Sally in danger. Will he guess you were hiding something? Don't worry about me, child. I go up to the big house Monday morning, and I be screaming and crying. He gone, he gone. I be in hysteria. And the mistress, she come and fan me and tell me to sit down. Then the master, he be trying to make some sense out of what I be saying, but I just keep on crying. He gone, he gone. By the time they calm me down, you already be gone. Two good days. No, child, don't you worry about me, she grinned. Now it's time for you and me to see Granny by getting you some protection roots. I hugged Aunt Sally hard. The next night, I gathered my friends, and we went to see Granny, the medicine woman. Do you want me to go on? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, love, you love Aunt Sally. I love Aunt Sally. See, yeah, Aunt Sally was great. a picture. <laughs> yes, Aunt Sally. Yeah, yeah, I like Granny too. Um, yeah, particularly when you, you write that Granny was the most respected person in the quarters. You know, respecting how we respect our elders, and um, mm-hmm. which is something that's not necessarily um, a given anymore. I used to think it was a given uh, a long time ago, like as an adult. Uh, but now I've spoken to a lot of young people, and, and that respect for our elders isn't a given. Um, no. it, you know, it doesn't. For me, it didn't matter necessarily what you did. If you lived as long as you lived, if you older than me, then you deserved a certain respect. I mean, mm-hmm. I would definitely look at your character, and I might not. You know, you might not be my role model, but you still got respect because you were older than me, and it mm-hmm. lived longer than me, but that's not the case anymore. <laughs> the no, whole idea of mm-hmm. And I hope that this book does, does teach that that respect. Um, 
because that that is essential. You know, the the whole thing with the ancestors and uh, even in the African culture, ancestor worship, is that the ancestors, uh, the old people, are close. The respect for elders is that the elders are close to the ancestors, and of course, the respect for the ancestors. And you know, I have heard it been told that the ancestors can do you more good on the other side than they can on this side. And so there's a lot of respect for old people because of their knowledge, their wisdom, and uh, for their closeness to the ancestors. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. Uh, Granny was quite an interesting character as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How How did you, um, I mean, I was just thinking as you were reading that, um, you know, Aunt, Aunt Shirley was, um, uh, was, uh, Sally was written in in dialect, and mm-hmm. and then you know these young people have African names, and even the village, you know, Ogun Village, mm-hmm. um, you know, they have. So I was wondering, sort of, where the aspect of of your research came into play, you know, about sort of knowing what kinds of herbs and what kinds of medicine that Granny would send with the boys on their journey to protect their way to help them. Uh, you know, with different types of illnesses they might encounter to help them, you know, um, I mean, it was like magical, but it was also practical. And so the, how did you, how did you know, how did, how did you bring about the authenticity of, of this particular character and, and what she was giving to the boys? And, and then again, you know, around these African names uh, and what they meant, where, where did that come from? Well, I, I'll start with the dialect. Um, you know, in my former life, I was a speech therapist, and at the time, oh, yeah, they were right. trying to say <laughs> that uh, mm-hmm. uh, non-standard English was uh, poor English and all of that. But I had the good fortune uh, to study with uh, Dr. Orlando Taylor at an urban language um, institute and, and really got involved in uh, black dialect. And, you know, really came to appreciate it. It's at the same time, though, that I learned about the Gullah culture. And some of what uh, the research I've done in terms of Gullah culture uh, has to do with studying the herbs and those kinds of things. Because, uh, Jack, this is set in South Carolina. So we really are talking about, you know, the Gullah people, the kinds of herbs that they would have used. And, I, you know, I have to say that happily uh, I am a commissioner uh, from Florida on the uh, Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Commission, and so I get more of an opportunity now to to study and to relate to people from the Gullah culture. So it's it's really uh, looking at a lot of it's been done by looking at the Gullah culture, especially the part about about the herbs. Uh, you know, finding out what they used. And I have talked to some old women who have given me some life everlasting, which is I talk about in the book here. And I, I've told about putting a moss in your shoes. I've been, you know, out on the islands and, and talked to people. So a lot of this has, has come from uh, relations with Gullah people and with and with study. So this part um, is is it's pretty factual in the kinds of herbs that uh, that that Granny would use. Uh, you want me to read? I'll read a little bit yeah. of it. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Okay. Uh-huh. Now, now that we've got uh, our, our audience all interested, I guess we should, we should put them out of their misery. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, I I hugged uh, Aunt Sally hard. The next night, I gathered my friends and we went to see Granny. Uh, 
the medicine woman. Uh, she could have also maybe been called the conjure woman. Granny was the most respected person in the quarters. She delivered the babies, took care of the sick, and did other mysterious things for the quarters that people whispered about. Granny also taught the children the old ways that came from Africa and told them never to forget them. A small, round woman with a wide, toothless smile, her head wrapped in a red bandana, opened the door to their knock. Come in, children, she welcomed them. How you be, Sally? Granny's cabin was different from any they had ever seen. It had the sweet smell and warm feel of the woods. All along the wall and sitting on the floor were jars filled with what looked like dirt and leaves. Next to a doll dressed in red and wearing different colored beads, a candle burned in the corner. And if you really are into the traditional African religions, uh, that might have been uh, Santa Barbara or Shango from this, this era. As, Saint, as Aunt Sally and Jack and his friends settled down, Granny opened an old wooden trunk and pulled out five red flannel bags. She needs one of these for each one of you children. Next, she placed some of her jars on the table, reached in, and extracted a pinch of herb from each one. All the while, she murmured to herself, Let's see, a bit of life everlasting to keep you strong and healthy. Need some angelica root for protection, too. This here gopher dust will trouble them slave catchers, she laughed. How about a little of this hot foot powder to keep dogs and slave catchers away? Let's finish it off with some John the Conqueror to chew. After adding a rock and a coin to each red flannel bag, Granny stopped to consider. Well, my children, need just a bit of your hair for your bag. Having collected these from each one of them, she lit a cigar and blew smoke into each of the bags. Now, children, you be safe from everything. Won't be no hound, no slave catcher, no wild animal get you. Granny, make your journey safe. Then followed what seemed like the longest week of any before for the friends. They had trouble sleeping and eating. They counted the days until Saturday afternoon, but finally it came. After their work in the fields, they raced to the quarters, gathered their bundles, and scurried off to the woods to meet Quashi. <laughs> that color um, yeah. red. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's very special. It it, it shows up uh, in the flannel, and it's a very special uh, color in in terms of um, you know the spirits. Yeah, um, yeah. We um, yeah. I have a friend who um, was a Seminole, and he had a, a, a I guess um, a shawl or a cape that his. Um, mm-hmm. His ancestor brought from right to the stick. There was a walking stick that came from from Senegal that had been passed on, you know, in the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he, mm-hmm. um, yeah, but it was red. Red was like the dominant color. And I was just thinking mm-hmm. about the um, uh, Maasai. You know, you think about the Maasai cloth. Mm-hmm. You know, a mm-hmm. lot of times, um, like the, the color we we know the most. I mean, they have other colors. Is the red one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people don't wear red. Um, yeah, red is real. <laughs> it's real, real powerful energy. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, I, I've kept you over, um, you know, talking about <laughs> about Obi, uh, and so um, just just want to bring up a couple of more characters uh, that that were really wonderful, and 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 just how the book, even though it's not really long, it sort of takes us through the various emotions that one might feel going from captivity. And things we, you know, even if we, what we knew is bad, we know it. We know what it means to be a captive to the unknown, which is the journey, and then actually getting, you know, to the other side, which is a whole other learning curve. Um, and, and these, you know, I mean, they're young boys. I mean, you know, 15, you know, through 20, and they know that they're going to be sought after because this is the prime age for, for labor. Um, so they're, you know... By them taking their freedom, they are, um, you know, sort of really impoverishing the system because <laughs> the system is definitely yes, going to miss yeah. their, yes. their presence. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Do you, you want to speak to that? Well, or? yes. Uh, as I said before, <laughs> you know, this, this age uh, was where you got most of the, the runaways. Uh, they came from, you know, this group of boys. They, they didn't have families yet. Um they also, um, you know, the, the Africans, the, the ones who were had just arrived, they also would run away, you know, quite readily. But it um, these the young boys, you know, they didn't have children. They were stronger. They could they could do this, and so it was much harder. Although uh, Obi and those encountered uh, a woman traveling who was pregnant. It was much harder um, to travel with young children, you know, because you would have to travel, um, you know, at night and during the day. You know, if you had children, they would have to remain quiet. And as you read the book, Obi, it, it was not. It was a. It was a dangerous trip. You know, they traveled through swamps. And it was a very dangerous trip, and so the young men would be the ones who could do it. Now, the one thing, uh, you know, slaves that we don't read about, and we like to, at the Blanchard House, tell untold and untaught history, uh, what we don't read about a lot is the resistance. And, of course, people resisted, you know, by breaking uh, tools or by leaving the, the, the gate open and, you know, pretending they were sick or they'd steal uh which they, they didn't conceal, consider stealing. You know, they had produced it. They would take, uh, liberate some things um, that they needed, food or whatever. But nothing hurt the slave owner. Nothing hurt the system as much as stealing oneself. Mm-hmm. That was the greatest threat. And actually, the Maroons were the greatest threat to the institution of slavery. Because by the mere fact that in the word somehow was able to pass through the grapevine, the mere fact that there were Africans who were using their labor for themselves, who were free, did give ideas to others that this might be possible. And they helped each other to be free. And so the, the, the Maroons, why it probably has been kept as, as untold and untoward history is because of the, the power that it had to destabilize the institution of slavery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I want to let the audience know that that you also you have an epilogue and you have an appendix, you know, sharing um, more about you know some of these leaders, uh, you know, in the Seminole Maroon um, uh, movement, and uh, you know, like Abraham and quite quite mm-hmm. a bit on Abraham and John uh, Caesar and John Cavallo, and 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 then. Um, uh you uh you share you just sort of hint at but these these wars and and mm-hmm. the, and and the success of these wars and you said that to date um the the Seminoles, the black Seminoles see themselves as undefeated and 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 you know and, and then the connection that you make uh just to Florida and Mexico and and that movement of of African free African people uh, is also something that people now, might not know. There are, uh, in fact, it is the Seminoles of Florida that call themselves the the unconquered people, but there are still Black Seminoles uh, who live in Florida. Okay. Mm-hmm. The Seminoles are the ones who, who call themselves the, the unconquered people. But what is most interesting, uh, you, you see where um, Obinos had to end up taking the boats, you know, at, at the end of the war. Uh, a deal was made so that they could go with the Seminoles out to Oklahoma, and then uh, they went out to Texas. And, of course, um, Texas was a slave state, and, and they were still tracking them. So that is why a John Horse in particular uh, got and he's in the book. Um, they moved, and Obi and his his group they moved to Mexico. Um, they're still the descendants of these Maroons. Still, some of them still live in Mexico. And in September of every year, at Fort Clark um, in Texas, the descendants of these people who started out as Gullah came to Florida to escape slavery, then went west. The descendants, these are Gullah people who still have descendants living in Texas, Mexico. They are in Cuba. They are in the Bahamas. So these maroon, their descendants are still around. In fact, the last year I went out to uh, Texas, to Fort Clark, because I wanted to meet with these people. And I have to tell you, there's something very special about them. They are just very, very proud of who they are. You you see the pride. You feel the pride in them. And so um, the Maroons uh, did not die. The story just hasn't been told. And, and the one thing, I think the last thing that I say um, in the book I think it's very important that I that I say it to the young people if I can find it here. Um, now, however, you've read the story or hearing about this. So let, let me start here. The stories that Obi the Elder tells are the untold history, history that none of us learn in schools, stories about the Africans who resisted enslavement and who did not accept it willingly, who ran away determined to make their own destinies. These stories are untold because those who teach social studies and history have not heard of them either. How few people, teachers included, and their teachers too, have ever heard of the Maroons? How many of you are vaguely aware 
of the courageous and powerful role they played in the history of Florida and of the United States. Now, however, you who read this story are hearing about them. Now you can tell the story of the Maroons to others, since you, the storytellers of today, are the ones with this knowledge. You, like Obi, I'm talking to the young people, can carry forward a proud tradition of courage and power. Yeah, that's a great message. You know, on the, on the cover of the book, um, this doesn't look like a painting. Is that a painting? It looks like a photograph. It is a photograph. And right on the right of the back side, uh, on the back of the book, if you look in that little towards the right, cover photo, young Obi features Matthew Griffin. Now, Matthew Griffin is the nephew of John Griffin, whose story about his heroes is in this book. Matthew was eight or nine years of age when he started doing um, the reenactments. And so here he is as this young man who has grown up doing these reenactments. And so he uh, agreed to be the story, to be the young Obi. And one of the things uh, that I want kids to, to look at is to look at Obi, the picture of Obi and the African, to look at Obi the very first time he met Kwashi, and then look at who Jack, who was Jack then. Look at Jack then when he believed he was a slave, when he felt he was a slave, when he acted like a slave. And then look at the cover and look at Obi, who knows who he is. He's self-defining. He's self-determined. He knows who he is, and he's a leader. And that's what has to happen with young people. They need to come away from the image of what the media says they are and to become the image of Obi on the horse. Well, this has been a really, really wonderful conversation, um, and uh, people can buy the book at uh, maroonconsciousness.com. And uh, is that would, is that the place you'd like people to get the book? Or yes, they, uh, then they, okay. if they get it there, they can read more about maroon consciousness mm-hmm. and the seven principles. <laughs> they, there's a little bit more learning there that can take place. And yes, we, we really do want people to, to learn about the consciousness because it can make a real difference in our communities. If enough of us develop this consciousness, it can really make a difference for ourselves and especially for our children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Yeah, and, and then September, when when is this, um, this, this celebration of Maroon culture uh, at Fort Clark? What, what, what month? I mean, what, um, uh, what date? Mm-hmm. It's usually about the third weekend, and if okay. you go to uh, Fort Clark, mm-hmm. look at that site, you can probably, okay. um, I think I went the third weekend. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that sounds really great. Wow. Yes. And and was your book written then when you went? No, no, it wasn't written then. I was still working on it. Mm-hmm. So what do they think about it? I actually read for them. Uh, the people there enjoyed it. I, some of the chapters I had finished, 
and I read for them there, and because it was very important to connect them, because they started out in South Carolina, came to Florida, became Maroons, and then they went to Texas and Mexico. And actually, they they speak uh, an um, an Afro Seminole Creole. They speak a different, um, you know, after the, the ones who were involved with the Indians speak a a different um, dialect than the the people connected, but than the people in South Carolina. It is so much different because they have included uh, many of the Seminole words. It's very mm-hmm. fascinating. Yeah, yeah, and in your book, uh, when uh, when the boys you know make it to uh, to the village, and um, and learn you know the things they need to learn to be able to to live, you know, um, productively in in this new environment, uh, they they go and they they start their own community, um, and and one of the first things that they do is they um all of the africans not just you know my i'm 